Welcome back, everybody, to the Directors Club Podcast. My name is Jim Laskowski, and I'm letting you know that uh, Patrick's favorite song of 2017 was called Bend Over by a Giant Dog. And the song that opened this here episode, part two, is a song called Motion Sickness by Phoebe Bridgers. Yes. Just wanted to give you a heads up. And now, on with the show. Okay. Why don't we read a couple of lists, Patrick? Sounds good. First up, we have supporting character's very own Bill Ackerman, a great guy. Um, Sounds good. Fantastic guest on previous episodes of Director's Club, if you're curious to hear more. Uh, Let's uh, also read his list, because it's quite lengthy. There's 40 titles here. Let's go. All right. Three Foot Ball and Souls, Anti-Porno, Bad Genius, Blue Velvet Revisited, BPM Beats Per Minute, Call Me By Your Name, Columbus, A Dark Song, Dawson City, Frozen Time, Endless Poetry, Faces, Places, Good Time, Hagu, Hagazusa, A Heathen's Curse. Keep singing. Keep singing. Pounds of Love. The killing of a sacred deer, Lady Bird. Let the corpses tan, let the sun shine in. Logan Lucky, Loveless, the Meyerowitz stories, new and selected. Most beautiful island, Nakarama on the beach at night alone. Lee Park, Phantom Thread, Piazzas, Vitro. <laughs> But Piazza, I can't say it. It's an Abel Ferrara movie. Rat film, raw. Risk, the shape of water. Staying vertical, the square. Step, super dark times, thorough breads, the unknown girl, the untamed violet. Zama! Oh Pretty my good. gosh. So you can go check out his list at autoristrap.blogspot.com. And you can download that off of SoundCloud. Uh, or Bandcamp. Yeah, we're going to SoundCloud, Bandcamp, Amazon Music. It's got a, it's on all the, all the hits. The next list we have here is from Sergio Mims of WHPK and a previous uh, guest here on Directors Club, several-time guest. Great guy, great guy. Yeah, very fun guy. His number 10 was Coco. Number 9 was Logan. His number 8 was American Made. His number 7 was Lost City of Z. His number 6 was Ex Libris. His number 5 was The Post. His number 4 was The Florida Project. His number 3 was Mudbound. His number 2 was Dunkirk. And his number 1 was Hostels. Try to throw that... The sequel to Hostels Part 2? There is actually a sequel to Hostel Part 2. Oh, there's Hostel 3. Oh, shoot. Okay. It was directed by... Uh, what you, it's, it's directed oh, that's by right. Boy. That guy... The guy who did Intruder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your boy. <laughs> Hostels. Um, it's a Western with Christian Bale that comes out soon, but I'm not crazy about the director, so I didn't make it a priority. It didn't look very good, but Sergio Mims, hey, worth listening to. He loves whiskers. He, whiskers? He loves Westerns. Whiskers. Whiskers. He, he loves whiskers. There's a lot of kittens in that movie. Do you want to read more lists or do you want to go into our tens? Let's just let's do our tens. All right. I'm, I'm uh, going to do my got, ten first. Yeah, yeah, please do. Um, my number ten is a film that I saw at the Cinepocalypse Film Festival. It's a film we watched together. It is Tragedy Girls. Oh, yeah. By uh, Tyler McIntyre, written by Chris Lee Hill, uh, Josh Olsen, and Tyler McIntyre. It is a horror comedy, and it is the only movie I've seen since seeing Scream 
that captures the feeling of watching Scream. Ooh. Scream is one of my favorite movies of all time. And obviously in the immediate wake of Scream, there were like 70 movies that all tried to be Scream and failed. Um, what, Urban Legend? Yeah, yeah, no. It turns out the faculty, not as good as the Scream. But, um, and then every once in a while, every so often, someone would try to recapture Scream. Um, some people would do it by trying to be very postmodern. Some people would do it by trying to be like about hip teen characters who are like nonchalant about their imminent deaths or whatever. Um, there's a very specific formula of horror and comedy and actual character work at, at play in Tragedy Girls that is beautiful and works so well. It's not for everyone. I think this is going to be something that some people will be like, well, it's on this top ten list. I got to see it. And they see it and they go, I hated that. This is – there is a <laughs> level of obnoxiousness here. It's not the babysitter obnoxious. It's much sharper and smarter and funnier than the babysitter. But like there is a high possibility I think for certain kinds of people the two main characters of this film will annoy them or put them off. And if that is the case – then this film will not work because this movie is about these two characters played by Alexander Shipp, um, who was in the X-Men movies and straight out of Compton, and Brianna Hildebrand, who played teenage Negasonic Warhead on Dead, in Deadpool. Oh, right. Um, and they are these two friends, these two cheerleaders who run this uh, true crime blog called Tragedy Girls. Um, and it's sort of... One of the brilliant strokes of the screenplay is it begins in media res. There's already been a serial killer stalking their town. There's already, like, this slasher movie that has been <laughs> happening. And the movie opens with um, uh, Brianna Hildebrand sort of making out with a guy specifically to lure out. Like, it's almost like it's – it almost – and because this movie has references sprinkled throughout, it feels like a reference to Jason Goes to Hell, the way the FBI agent goes to the camp and takes a shower to lure out Jason. <laughs> it's the same sort of thing. But actually, uh, what Brianna Hildebrand and Alexander Ship have in mind, I forget the character's name, so I'm just going to call them by the actor's names, uh, is they want to make the serial killer teach them and become his apprentice uh, because they want to kill people and they want – because they want to be able to, A, kill people because they're sociopaths who – they're psychopaths. But then, B, they also want to – be able to profit off of that by by like having this true crime blog and basically Peter Parkering it where it's like oh I got great pictures of Spider Man you know? yeah, yeah yeah like it's it's the same sort of vibe so um, very quickly he says no and they're like well fuck you anyway and that is the like it sets up one movie that's already happening it finishes that movie it sets up this high concept premise for a horror film then it says actually no fuck that we're gonna go this way because these girls are too smart for that. And it is about these two girls and their friendship. And it, if you watch the trailer, it really lays he- it's really lays heavy on the whole like teens and social media. Like people yeah. are obs- are narcissistic and obsessed with getting likes. You know, kind of like Heather's meets Ingrid Goes West kind of a thing. Uh, like I think the trailer leans on that more than the film does. The yeah. film is not as judgmental on these characters as I think the trailer. I think the trailer just goes for easy jokes of someone like referencing Facebook or something. Mm-hmm. The movie itself is really sharp and funny. I think the two actors are so good together. Um, Great chemistry, yeah. Like in terms of friend, memorable friendships. Yeah. yeah. So it is. It is very Heather's. Um, I like it. I like it more than Heather's. Um, I think uh, there's like a, there's a role played by Josh Hutcherson as like this sort of chump uh, kind of hunk guy oh, right, on a yeah. motorcycle, and you know obviously he gets off, but he is like uh, unbelievably amazing. And 
obviously, as they're working on this project together, as anyone who has been in high school and worked on a project with another student goes, there's like tensions rise and there's they're sort of, you know, um, jockeying for position to be like the person in charge. And um, it's just it's really well plotted and scripted. It's really funny. Um, it really does a good like the tone it walks is so incredible to me because it is it's not it's just real enough that you buy the stakes of their friendship and that the sort of horrible gruesome violence is that much funnier because it's like holy shit but it isn't so real that it it but it just has just sort of enough of like a cartoon maybe like tv element mm-hmm. like the sort of like a like a sitcom almost tone to it that uh, you swallow this very preposterous story as it's happening. There's this great character who's in the background of a lot of the scenes who uh, I asked Tyler McIntyre about this at the yeah, Q&A. Was and he was like, yeah, I kind of envisioned her as like this final girl. Like as we're watching this movie, there's this whole other movie going on is that she's the only one who realizes what's happening. Um, I think she's brilliant in it in like a very small part. I just – it is the thing that I've always wanted since seeing Scream. I'm like – I. I love watching Scream, and I think it's much funnier than Scream. I think the the script is much better, like, much cleverer. The thing Scream has over Tragedy Girls is Scream is actually scary, and Tragedy Girls so, yeah. is not really that's It's not really a scary. It kind of works as a horror movie, but it's not – it's more of a comedy. Yeah, in terms of, you know, horror this, this, this past year, like – you, you can tell that, you know, something like Wish Upon wanted to be that with a little Final Destination thrown in. And, you know, Happy Death Day, too, kind of pays homage to, like, early 90s horror. But Tragedy Girls was the one that got it right and also had strong characters at the yeah. center. Like, the other ones don't. <laughs> and this one is just, you you, you know, you could, see, you, you could see why these two are mm-hmm. so appealing together. Right. And I, also very shallow. <laughs> but again, yeah, they, they are shallow and they are... F- well, here's the thing. They're shallow and they're feminine and they are yeah. like, self-obsessed. So like they can very much put off a certain kind of person who is not willing to open their heart to that kind of character. Because they are not that different than the kind of character who would be an antagonist in a typical teen movie. Mm-hmm. They just happen to be the protagonist. But there's also just like sh- – like sh- uh, there's – you know, and obviously you know, like references to other horror movies is like the oldest thing in the world. But like I do like appreciate the very subtle touches it has as far as like there's a Cannibal Holocaust reference. Ah. Uh, and there's, you know, there's some Roger Corman like uh, references. Brianna Hildebrand's room is just full of like 50s and 60s era Corman posters and stuff like that. Like it's, it's a really well-achieved comedy. It was I think the funniest movie I saw this year. Um, and very good perhaps, ki- and very good kills. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very no, no, memorable. it's it is just like the version of this movie. It's like the perfect version of this movie, um, but it is that kind of movie. It is sort of a broad horror comedy. There's not a lot of depth to it, but I just had such a great time with it. So, Tragedy Girls was my number ten. It's number twenty eight on my list. I can't I can't wait to rewatch it. Yeah, you know, I think it came out very briefly, like in one theater it did. in Chicago, it, and it, that's it, it. It came and went. It it got, you know, it it had basically no release. And again, that trailer did it no favors because that trailer really leans heavy on the like people saying stuff about their blogs, and that really yeah. isn't the basis of the film. But if something like I don't know, uh, the Babysitter. And you know, better watch out. I mean, like, there's a lot of horror straight to streaming now, straight to streaming on Netflix or wherever horror movies that I think find like a little bit of a cult following. 
I don't see why this wouldn't follow suit with that. Like once it gets a proper sort of uh, Blu-ray release, yeah, like, I, felt I think like people will pick up on this. If, one. if this hits Netflix, it, it might. But I felt like no one I knew on Letterboxd watched this movie. Huh. And I follow pretty much exclusively like genre people. Yeah. And I feel like I was one of the and I, and I liked it way more than most people. So again, like this just might not be your thing. But for me, Tragedy Girls was the closest I've come to the first time at watching Scream. And in some ways, it is better than Scream. Yeah, once it's widely available, it's something I would like post on the, uh, you know, the Shockwaves forum to be like, guys, this is it. This oh, is I'm what sure, you want to sure see. The people who would be on like the Shockwave forum. They probably already know probably what's coming out. It. Yeah. Yeah. Number 10 for me couldn't be more different. It's a film called Rat Film. And I watched it this past week. Had no idea what to expect. I think... I heard Michael Phillips talk about it on Film Spotting as being one of the most surprising documentaries that he's seen. And in a year of pretty good documentaries like um, like Jane, which was pretty pretty wonderful, was, that was from the director of um, Montage of Heck. Uh, this one kind of floored me in its in its experimentation as a documentary form, similar to Camera Person, and just that, like. It kind of jumps around, and it's a little episodic, but everything is still tied together. There's correlations between different things, and it starts it out. About? It starts off as just being like, let's talk about the out-of-control rat population taking place, you know, um, in, in Baltimore. And just like they, they have – I mean, a lot of major cities do have a rat problem. <laughs> like, we see signs of it here in Chicago. Um but it's it, they want to get to the, the to the core of it, and yet at the same time they're able to um, tie it together towards gentrification, systematic racism, um, or systemic is it sy- systemic systemic racism, and like how it's perpetuated because of class systems and poverty and it's just like you know they talk they show pictures of a map and like why some neighborhoods like you know only certain races go here or at one point in history uh you know the mayor made people relocate and and encouraged white folks to only live in this one part of town and just like a lot of a lot of things about um politics you know on more of a city level that I never knew about that were very interesting, but at the same time also tackling like, you know, the, the, again, the macro with the micro and finding like people who actually go out and spend their nights hunting rats, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, I didn't know that's like just something they do for as a hobby. Like some of them have guns. One guy has like a fishing hook that he throws like, you know, bait onto and tries to capture rats that way. And he has a, um, you know, a friend that with a baseball bat that goes around. So you, you get to know a lot of eccentric characters. Um, you know, one guy who is actually in rat control or pest control. Uh, and he sort of like talks a lot about this isn't about rats. This is about people um, struggling in their foundation and not being able to, um, you know, work together or communicate together or commune together the way he did or the way that his families did and back in the day like everybody was more social everybody was interacting everybody was sort of helping each other out and now everybody's very isolated and cornered off into certain sections of this Baltimore neighborhood so 
I mean, the only downside I felt was like the narration um, throughout the film that sort of like gives you these, you know, a lot of information in a Wikipedia kind of manner. It reminded me, uh, the voice reminded me of the guy who who narrated your Hunt of Red October audiobook. Um, <laughs> Just like really dry. Da, 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 yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Very much so. And like it, there wasn't a lot of life to it. It was, little, it was very robotic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, all the information was kind of, I never knew about it. So I learned something. But as a, you know, 80 minute documentary, uh, it, it's, it's is the antithesis of what bugs you about documentaries. Sure, no, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's great, and I can't wait to watch it again because there's a lot of information to absorb throughout. And let's read uh, let's read two more lists before we get to our number nines. Woo-wee! Uh, do you want to go ahead and read Kurt Halfyard's? Yeah. Number 10 for Kurt Halfyard, formerly of the Cinecast and Row3.com, is Wormwood. Number nine is The Founder. Number eight is A Cure for Wellness. Number seven is Alien Covenant. Number six is The Florida Project. Number five is Good Time. Number four is Dunkirk. Number three is The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Number two is Mother. And number one huh, is Lucky. <laughs> well, Dan Solomon of the Austin Journalist has something to say about that. Because he has his top ten here. It's not numbered, but I'll read them anyway. The Florida Project, Colossal, Get Out, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Coco, The Big Sick, Lady Bird, Wonder Woman, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and Thor Ragnarok. I also did not see Thor Ragnarok because after being burned by Logan and Wonder Woman, that was the other movie this year that people were like, this is not a typical superhero movie. Yeah, somebody got to do what we do in the shadows. I know. I like that guy. And I got mad that he was making a <laughs> Marvel movie because I'm like, well, now I don't get to see his next movie. Yeah. I, I sure hope we don't get, <laughs> we get the announcement that Shane Carruth's next movie is a comic book movie. Yeah, that's that probably right. Oh, God. That's probably – Shane Carruth is going to be making Cars 4. So did you see A Cure for Wellness? Because I've been – I did. Oh. I, uh, yeah. I it has less visual imagination than the average pirate sequel. Mm. Than the average Gore Verbinski pirate sequel. I hear that's why to watch it, though, is for the visuals. That's – yes. That is oh, what okay. I'm saying. Okay, it okay, is okay. not worth watching because <laughs> uh, the visuals it – is, it is super sluggish. It tries to, like, connect – this. it tries to be about capitalism, but it does so, like, very poorly and only intermittently. And I really do think, like – and part of this is because I do like those first two pirate sequels – but, like, I really do think it has way less life and um, interesting visuals than those movies. It kind of feels – so Gore Verbinski was going to adapt Bioshock, which is a video game. Um, he was going to adapt that into a film. And huh. that is a video game that takes place around, like, the 30s or 40s and has a lot of, like, art deco punk sort of, like, feel to it. And some of the stuff in Cure for Wellness feel like him taking ideas he had for Bioshock – and putting it into that movie. And I was, like, really bummed that he didn't get to make Bioshock. But then I saw a Cure for Wellness. And I go, actually, maybe it's better off. So. Well, maybe he'll make Biodome instead. Anyway. Um, Probably. Uh, we'll see. But I, I, I just – I saw the running time for that. I'm like, no. I don't know if I'm going to watch it now. Yeah. Even though I was curious. Patrick, what's your number nine? My number nine is Dunkirk. Oh. Um, oh. I do specifically need to say my number nine is – for the 70 millimeter, uh, like theatrical experience. Oh, you saw it in 70 millimeter. Yeah. Okay. At, I, did, at, I did not. Of I did. Dunkirk, hmm. um, because I rewatched it at home 
uh, on on Blu-ray, and I don't have great speakers or, or a huge TV. Maybe people who do it would make a difference. That movie is not impressive at all at home. But and yeah. I was like, I was just sort of like, really, huh? Okay. But when I saw it in theaters, edge of my seat, hands gripping the grips, uh, the grips, the <laughs> arms of my chair, just like, oh my god, what? Ah, ooh, like I think Dunkirk does Christopher Nolan a great service, or I think Christopher Nolan has done himself a great service by cutting out all of the shit that is so terrible in Christopher Nolan movies. Like, I really uh, the think exposition the, of Inception. The exposition of ex- Inception, the terrible, like, family dynamics of Interstellar, the, like, super uh, terrible, like, just tendency to just be like, well, what's this person's backstory? His wife is dead. All right, what about that character? His wife is dead. He He's sad because his wife is dead. Like, <laughs> ju- they, he just cuts out all of the shit that makes me embarrassed to say I like Christopher Nolan movies. And oh, don't be embarrassed. He's good. I'm just saying there's embarrassing shit in those movies. Yeah, but I I, I don't care if people I, – I don't know. When people, like, harp on about, like, exposition inception, I'm like, but I like the exposition. I don't mind it. Yeah, I do not. I do not whatsoever. And that's not even my main problem. My main problem is, like, he just makes these, like, white dude pain movies. Like, he's just – like, he can't handle emotions that aren't just, like, tortured man whose wife is dead or something like that. Like – it's like he cuts all that shit out though, and he creates a very singular vision of warfare that feels like the first person. He feels like the first person who has extrapolated from Steven Spielberg, Saving, Saving Private, Private Ryan, Ryan, and done something new with it. Yeah. Um, the other thing I have to say is that I like big budget spectacle action movies. I genuinely do. My problem is that we live in a sort of post photographic world where the fact that no CGI is convincing doesn't seem to matter to anyone. Like, I don't think anyone actually, when they're watching a scene with Captain America, or with Iron Man flying around and he punches something, and then the camera does, like, an insane 300-mile-per-hour zoom down to Incredible Hulk, and he's punching something, and then Captain America throws a shield and punches something. Like, I don't think anyone who's sitting there watching it, other than little children, actually has their disbelief suspended. I don't think that they're watching it and looking at it as if it's really happening. I think they're all very well aware that it's, they're just watching a cartoon. Yeah, it's possible. But everybody's I don't. Bringing, I think everybody's people, brain perception is I a little different. I think people have just sort of accepted that and don't mind it and maybe even actually like it. Um, I am not that person. And maybe that's just, like, me with my mind being too closed off. But, like, I think we kind of – I think – the thing about Hollywood that I've uh, Hollywood cinema in general that I've come to accept is we live in a post photographic world where things that don't look like they are actually photographed in front of the camera don't bother people. Uh, people don't mind if like the color correction is so heavy that like it just looks like completely weird and different. Like people don't mind. I'm, I mean. I'm, I'm not going to go harp on this oh, again. Oh, no, you're not going to Mad Max Fury Road. I'm not going to harp on this no. again because, again, like Mad Max Fury Road does so many things amazingly well. But for mm-hmm. me, the experience of watching that movie, I might as well have been watching a cartoon because of the digital color grading, because of the speed ramping, because of like all that stuff. It doesn't look real to me. It doesn't look like it's actually happening. Christopher Nolan is the only person working in that space who actually makes spectacle that I buy. I look at it and I say, yes, that is happening in front of me. My belief is dis- uh, my disbelief is suspended. I am s- sitting on the beach with this person. Mm-hmm. And 
the bombs are coming and I'm genuinely afraid of what's happening because I really feel like the bombs are there. I'm sure Dunkirk has plenty of CGI, but he also did just like strap a fucking IMAX camera to an antique fighter plane and that is those shots on the side of... uh, Yeah. Like... There's some amazing shit in Dunkirk that is the thing that I am just... And maybe, like, I wouldn't like Dunkirk as much if I got more of this from other movies. But, like, I am so hungry for this kind of action, this kind of big spectacle action to actually be something that I'm interested in and can and can just, and can be convinced by. And it's just the only thing that's there. And I do think there's lots of interesting things going on. I don't necessarily know if... The time scale thing, which I didn't even realize the first time I saw it, that yeah. everything was operating. Like, I don't know how I didn't realize. I think I was just so, like, immersed in the sort of raw, visceral experience that I wasn't thinking in terms of plot. That's the only thing I, but find, like, that's the only thing I find distracting, and I don't know. I think it's interesting, it's but interesting. I, I'm not going to defend it as good. Yeah, <laughs> I won't go that far, but, like, I do think, like, every step he takes to sort of abstract your typical war movie... Like, the thing... I mean, I really like Saving Private Ryan, but, like, the things I really love about Saving Private Ryan and will fight to the death about Saving Private Ryan are the way that Spielberg shoots combat. Mm. I think the the troops getting to know each other and, like, oh, you're just a kid, you'll learn, yeah, typewriter, here's a pencil. Like, like that whole (laughs) thing is just, like, that's fine. That all works. I enjoy it, but, like, that is just... I've seen a hundred times before, and everything that Christopher Nolan does, and I think the timescale thing is one of those... To distance you from that idea of what a war movie is serves to enhance the uh, excitement of yeah. Dunkirk. Yeah, uh, the experience as a whole is effective, and, right? And that's what I and that's and like I think like people who you know complain about there not being like characters to relate to or any kind of emotional story whatsoever, like uh, that is the thing that makes that movie work to me. If if those sure, people okay. on the ship had any more backstory than they did. I would just start tuning it out. I would just be like, all right, now I'm just waiting for the part that I actually like. But I don't have to wait for the part I actually like with Dunkirk. The Almost the entirety. There's parts of it. Like, I think the ending is cheesy. Um, I think, again, Christopher Nolan is kind of a conservative guy. And his sort of picture, like, he doesn't even really do the due diligence that Spielberg does as far as war being hell and the nastiness of war. Like, he does sort of view this as, like... These are heroic men, and this is all about valor, and like this is. I think it's more about survival than valor. No, no, no. There's. I think. I think the uh, what's his name from Just Spies? Okay, Mark. Mark Ryan. I think his decision to keep going to Dunkirk is about that. I think the. I think the sort of the end where the kid who died gets a newspaper story about him. I think Mark Tom Hardy's story is about that. Yeah. I think this movie is what Samuel Fuller would call another goddamn recruitment film. I get. I mean, certainly more than other war films, right? And certainly, like much more than other war films post Vietnam, because yeah. even Spielberg, which he intended Saving Private Ryan to be this tribute to the troops, like even that movie has like some really nasty moments and oh, good God, like yes. implications of people who are not Nazis getting mistaken for Nazis and killed, and like, like I and I think I think and I think Saving Private Ryan is also what Samuel Fuller would call another goddamn recruitment film, and I enjoy it in spite of that, but like. Um, I, and I don't think Christopher Nolan has any compunction about just wholeheartedly embracing the myth of the heroic war and the idea of, like, making men out of boys in that way. And I think in order for it to be exciting, he doesn't only do that. Like, he shows a lot of people fucking up and he shows, like, fear oh, yeah, and yeah. 
and danger and stuff, but that has always been part of that message. Um, that has always been like you can look at the most. You can look at what what's that movie that uh, what's that movie where Humphrey Bogart's in a tank? Uh, oh, uh, Sahara. Yeah, Battleground. Something like that. Where it's like North. So. It's the North African theater of World War Two. That movie is like the most mm. recruitment film ass recruitment film. Even that has some of that tension and terror. But so like I do have those reservations about it. But in general, like Dunkirk is the thing that I just like secretly hope for every time I go. Well, maybe maybe this time the Marvel movie will be different. Like maybe Star Wars will be. And like I I really like the Last Jedi, but like the yeah. big moments, the big like. Climactic action in the Last Jedi kind of does nothing for me for the same reasons, but um, I think that movie looks way more CGI than even The Force Awakens. Not that The Force Awakens looked very CGI, but Force Awakens is a movie I enjoy less. But anyway, but like yeah, I mean in the same way that you're describing that, it's like Dunkirk isn't overwrought or overblown or overlong either. It's kind of right. the perfect length. Mm-hmm. Like when it's over, it's kind of like wow. Yeah, no, it 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 just really works as an experience. Yeah, provided you can see it on a big enough screen with good speakers because I have a small I have a small TV and I, I just had the built-in speakers on the TV and that experience was like thumbs down. But at this point, you probably know where you land on Dunkirk if you're listening to this. You're probably not like, well, I was waiting to hear what Patrick had to say. <laughs> so, but anyway, that's where I land on Dunkirk. That's my number nine. Are you uh, excited to hear about what Jim has to say about the latest from Yorgos Lanthimos. Sure. Okay, yeah, I am. Um, the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Is your number nine. Yeah, that's my number nine film of 2017 on this episode of Director's Club. Um, <laughs> we already did the intro. <laughs> <laughs> the title of this film is a reference like to some Greek mythology, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I... I don't know. Like this, does it take place in this alternate world where? Uh, I mean, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem realistic in, in the way things play out. And like, are you oh, sure, Jim? Are you um, sure it's not like, realistic? And I'm just like, wait a minute. This is all heightened. This is very Kubrickian at times. And well, at this uh, point, I think he's earned he's earned it. It's very Lanthimosian. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, I guess so. Like, I mean, like he hasn't made a movie that. But I feel like Dogtooth is full of these static shots, and this is full of like a lot of tracking shots. Oh yeah, his style's a lot different. Of, yeah, a lot of shots that are you know from high up and from distances, and you know it's it's got a real again another film with a great score that's very eerie and creepy and really complements the mood. Uh, and you know Colin Farrell is just this is his best performance and. The, the the kid in this movie is pretty great. Again, from Dunkirk, he played has a small role in Dunkirk. Yeah, um, Barry Kagan. Yeah, I, I, I said his last name very fast because I wasn't trying to pronounce. Much it. like uh, um, Buzzard has an amazing spaghetti eating scene. Uh, there's just a lot of really peculiar things going on in this film that made it one of the more kind of hypnotic and creepy experiences I've had all year. And you know, I certainly, you know, I certainly recognize like. Well, this, I think at this point Nicole Kidman can kind of do this performance in her sleep um, and, like, even confronts Colin Farrell in a way that wouldn't be out of place in Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, like, I think their dynamic is really strong. And the it's like I don't want to spoil too much because people have not a lot of people have seen it yet. But what happens be- between this family is, is really uh, – I mean, some people have found it darkly comedic. 
I don't know if you found it to be this bleak black comedy. I will comedy. be talking about this Okay, later. okay, yeah, but I mean, like, I, I, I found it... I found it both tragic and bizarrely uh, amusing at times, especially the way they interact and uh, exchange words. Um, like uh, they they can be very blunt and uh, again passive, I guess. But it's just it's just a weird anomaly that's kind of like devoid of humanity. And I you know normally want a little optimism in the end, but this doesn't offer that. And I think it's about the randomness of. Uh, of chaos it's it, it's almost embracing the chaos theory of like okay you know i mean maybe it is partially a revenge story on the part of this kid but i also think like you know it's not like what happens at the beginning of this movie involving the father uh you know it, it, it's not like colin farrell is this vindictive evil doctor it just happens he lost somebody he lost his he lost a patient and now he's going to lose something else. Well, it is implied that he may have been drunk. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. it might have been negligence. Right, right. It could part. have been negligence. Yeah. Correct, correct. Okay. But, yeah, no, it's a it, – it, you know, if the, – the the reservations I had about the second half of The Lobster are nowhere to be found in this one. I, I thought it was consistently interesting the whole way through. Um, but, I, I mean, I love Dogtooth as well. But this one kind of – it sunk its claws into me a little bit more – and in, a, and in a way that uh, I'm still wrestling with, but in a great way. Uh, Killing of Sacred Deer, number nine. People, check it out. I think it's coming out uh, yeah, for soon. Uh, really soon. Yeah, We'll talk about it more, I'm sure. Patrick, you want to read the, some more? Yeah. What do you got? Or wait, is it my turn? That's Go my, for it. Uh, my turn is Robert Reinecke of Where the Long Tail Ends. And also a great podcast called Still Watching the Skies. He says, I'm excluding Twin Peaks... The Return, Five Came Back, and Tony Erdman from this year's list, as I feel like all three are a bit of cheats. Number 10, oh, we have a match, Robert, is Rat Film. Baltimore, Redlining, Poverty and Rats are all intertwined in this documentary. It's a fine companion piece to The Wire and made with real verve, is what he says. Number 9 is Logan. Number 8 is Personal Shopper. Number 7 is Columbus. Number 6 is The Shape of Water. Number five is Faces Places. Number eight is After the Storm, which I guess we should see, Patrick. Absolutely. Number three is Lucky. Number two is Get Out. And number one, oh, Lady Bird. Very charming movie. Very good list, Robert. We also have a list from Bob the Mechanic Ambleson. I don't know who this is, but maybe you <laughs> I know. Do. I think he's a new listener. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Welcome, Bob. Uh, his number ten is It. His number nine is The Post. His number eight is Colossal. His number seven is The Shape of Water. His number five, uh, six is Get Out. His number five is Detroit. His number four is War on Everyone. His number three is The Disaster Artist. His number two is Baby Driver. And his number one is Blade Runner 2049. What did you think of The Disaster Artist? I thought it was pretty bad. Yeah. I yeah. Th- I thought it was just okay. I didn't really think... I, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting, but I was expecting more. And it I also didn't like the way it pointless. ended. It's, yeah. It seemed like they thought... That they could, I mean, and they did. They they correctly thought that there was enough of a cult following around the room, mm-hmm. um, and and the book that it's based on was interesting enough that they could just sort of make the book on screen, and then that would be that. Yeah. But all the stuff where it's like, look, he's look, look, we're playing the move with clips from the actual room alongside James Franco's impression was like that revealed everything it had to say, which is nothing. It's just an impersonation. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt. 
It, it, there's no depth to it. It, it like it. It, it wants to be Ed Wood, but it fails. No, no, yeah, it can't even touch Ed Wood. But the other thing is, like, it even actively goes out of its way to obfuscate some of real stuff about Tommy Wiseau by like claiming at the end with the crawl that it's like to this day no one knows his age and where he's from. And my partner l- immediately looked up Tommy Wiseau on on IMDb and like he's from Poland. He's 56. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it just lies because hmm. it doesn't want to reveal any depth to the character. It wants him to be a mystery because it wants to preserve the fun cultness of it. Yeah. I'm not part of that down. cult. I think the room is a pretty cool, weird thing that happened. But I think I think James Franco's there. a bad director. And I think that this is another bad film that he has directed. Okay. How about me. a good film? How about a number eight good film? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Square. Ooh. By Ruben Oslin. You definitely like this one more than me, but I need to see it again. Who did Force Majeure. Again, it's funny because like Force Majeure ends in a way that I kind of shrug off and feel is anticlimactic, and mm-hmm. that's what happens with the square. And maybe I just missed the point of uh, of the way it concludes or what, what it's trying to like say. I do not like how the square concludes. Okay. I think the square is hilarious. I, I, I mentioned For this earlier. For the most part, yeah. Ruben Oslin just has my fucking number, and I think... I think some people uh, uh, take issue with sort of the bluntness of this film as far as, like, it just sort of states what it's going to be about ahead of time in the form of an art piece that's happening at this museum that it takes place yeah. around. But, like, for me, that statement early on is just like, okay, this is how you're supposed to be watching a movie. You know, Roger Ebert said, like, movies teach you how you're supposed to watch them. This movie said, this is how you're supposed to watch it. Whatever you do, don't watch this thinking like it's going to be a nice, clean narrative because it's it's episodic. It's very episodic and kind of messy. Yeah, and it's very messy. But like every single scene in that movie, I was hyper focusing on all of the little interpersonal details in every scene, and it just became sketch comedy. Like one scene after another, little gestures, little ways that people say things, and then go back on them and like rephrase them and try to wiggle out of being pinned to any one thing, like. I think Ruben Oslin has an ear for a certain kind of masculine cowardice that mm. is unparalleled. Um, I think his women characters kind of suffer because they're kind of only defined by their reaction to this sort of masculine cowardice. Um, and I think the uh, – what's her name? Uh, Elizabeth Moss character in this is actively bad. Like I don't think she's a good character. But luckily she's a very small part of the film. Yeah. But – so this opens with uh, a man walking uh, – it, it opens with a crowd walking past homeless people. And then right next to this homeless person, there's someone shaking a can, taking collections uh, to save – a like, you want to save a life? Who wants to save a life? And it's like there's already like this <laughs> brilliant image of a disconnect there. Then it cuts – then it camera sort of moves to one face in this crowd and you just hear a woman screaming in the distance and you see like yeah. two people turn. <laughs> and then, like she screams again and then you see like five people turn and it's this idea of like what is it going to take for you to turn around and get – and like, you know, I live in the city. I live in Chicago. Like I'm not going to turn around for every person who tries to get my attention. Like I understand that. There's, a, there's something very real um, and yeah, it, I didn't think of that, but yeah, that's true. Um, and it's and it's as you know, it's very actively like examining these things, like really beautifully and just hilariously for me. And again, this is my sense of humor, but like, um, and then uh, eventually, him and someone else uh, 
this girl runs up to them and she's like, help, you gotta help me, he's gonna kill me or whatever. And him and this other guy are like, we'll, we'll be okay or whatever. And then this guy who supposedly is chasing this woman comes running and they, 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 they stand up to him and they like tell him to back off. And it's this super intense experience. And then immediately they forget the girl. The girl just wanders off. <laughs> they don't make sure she's okay. They don't ask her what's it about. They don't ask her if she has a place to go or anything. Right. They immediately turn to each other, the two guys, and are like, oh, what a crazy... Oh, we almost had to fight someone right. in public. We had to break the social contract and engage in violence to protect... Like, that yeah. was an insane, he's, he's intense de- moment. He's deconstructing social contracts. Right, exactly. But then there's... An, like So the, the, the sort of... The reveal that like they don't care about this woman at all... It's just about how it affects them personally is hilarious. And then it's revealed that the whole thing was actually a scam to pick right. his pocket. Yeah. Because the guy who's running after him like bumps into him and then later he like hugs the other guy and then he realizes he doesn't have a phone or a watch or anything. And then he starts asking people who are walking by if he can use their phone <laughs> and he becomes one of the people by it's one of the most brilliant sequences in anything I've seen. I absolutely love it. And then this sort of spirals off. But, like, this is the way this movie operates. And I love that. I think uh, Clace Bang, I think is the, how you pronounce his name, is the, who's the lead actor. I think he does an amazing job with it. Um, I really like, as just sort of, because it's episodic, because it's all these little scenes that don't necessarily, you know, it's about, on a scene-by-scene basis, the interpersonal reactions and the power dynamics. It's not about telling this overarching story the way, like, I don't know, like, Kurosawa would explore this or something. Um, That's the thing that kind of turned me off a little bit in terms of its structure is that it is a little too episodic, and I wanted things to connect a little bit more cohesively. But, But, like, I mean... It took me a bit to, it took me a bit to, to, like, fit into this rhythm. I kept, like, I was getting a little antsy, and then I think about an hour in, it's about, like, a two, a little over two hours, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think about an hour in, it just clicked for me, and I was able to go with it, but it I didn't like the Tourette scene so much, but then, I mean, there are moments in this, including that dinner, is just unlike anything I'd seen, and it was just like, what's going to happen? It's the most unpredictable experience. uh, And also the setup of the... The museum, like the 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 rope going around the head of the statue, and just oh, yeah. like smashing that down, and then <laughs> building the square. The square in in question is this uh, conceptual art piece, which is um, when you are inside the square, everyone inside the square has the same rights and responsibilities to each other. Yeah, and the idea is when you're in the square, you have to decide what that actually means. And of course, that's what the film is about. So it's like, again, it's very blunt and mm-hmm. it is just telling you what the movie's about and that puts some people off and I understand that, but um, that really worked for me. Um, the way it spirals off is really funny too. I think Force Majeure is a movie I loved and I th- also thought it was very kind of darkly comic, but Force Majeure got a little repetitive by the end. Um, yeah. And... Uh, by drilling down into this one thing that happened and then just only dealing with this one aspect over and over again, it's sort of like I got the point and, you know, it was, it just, it was just a little repetitive. And then this one I felt had more variety. I felt the sort of over-the-top nature of it taking place in an art museum meant there was a lot of really fun comedy. Like the, 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 the image of the guy vacuuming, like, around all of the dust pile... <laughs> <laughs> like it's one of my favorite things and yeah um i actually didn't like the dinner scene because i do think the movie is supposed to take place in the real world and i just didn't buy that scene at all i don't like i don't buy that an artist would start sexually assaulting someone yeah that's i don't buy that like 
than the people. Like, it just, it felt like it was from a different thing. It felt like it was from, like, Killing of a Sacred Deer or something. Yeah, that's probably why I liked um, it. <laughs> I don't know. What, I mean, the way it escalated, I, I certainly felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I felt like, again, he's he's trying to, like, deconstruct awkwardness in right. these, like, really intense ways at well, times. Yeah, and, and specifically, like, you know, what do we owe to each other? Yeah. Because you can't give everything to everyone you meet. You know, like you just you can't live a life that way. Yeah, it feels like a like a like a sociology experiment throughout. No, yeah, no, that's, and that's it's a very sociologically minded film. Yeah, um, and but it but like very vitally, it's super funny to me. Like, yeah, I think par- the scene, are... the scene of him and his co uh, and not his coworker, his his employee who works for him. Like deciding what to write on that letter and getting there and like getting amped up and then when they oh, yeah, get yeah. there, like and the way he treats his employees and like deals with that power dynamic is hilarious. Um, I think at the end he sees the square of the cheerleading uh, competition and he sees those all the girls like going into a human tr- uh, pyramid and like that is actually. The square, like that's oh, actually right, right, yeah. people who are like trusting each other, and like yeah. we are going to throw you up, and we are going to catch, you. like you are going to climb on us. We will catch you when you fall because you are going to get like seriously injured if not. And like I like that as this being this sort of like joyful childish counterpoint to the like adult world of responsibilities and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think the kid who gets the letter and gets mad about the letter. I think the first scene with him where he sends his oh, employee yeah. to deal with him is very funny. I think everything that follows that kind of sucks with that kid because that because it's just it's it, again I just didn't buy it I just didn't and it like it becomes the emotional fulcrum this movie uh, yeah like it's mess, it's definitely messier than Force Majeure and that that guy and his relationship with that kid becomes the emotional fulcrum of the movie and I don't think that works very well um, I don't like the ending of the square but I it was one of the funniest movies I saw all year and. I really like Ruben Ostlin's visual style as well. How he, yeah, I do too. You know, he he does lots of master shots because he wants to play everything with as few cuts as possible because you want to build that tension. He, but he's able to find really he's able to make a really good looking movie without deviating too far from that master shot sort of style. Um, I I'm really into the square. I really enjoyed it, uh, despite uh, some misgivings I have about sort of its structure. Um. Number eight for me is a movie we'll be talking about a little bit more, and I, I'm more curious about your take since you've, I think you've probably seen it more than once. And uh, it's going to be higher up. Staying Vertical. Yeah. I'll be talking about that later. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like this weird anxiety dream. Um, it's got a lot of humor, a lot of pathos. Again, more choreographed kind of awkwardness throughout um, just really interesting character dynamics and unexpected. Talk about another unpredictable movie. Mm-hmm. I think that's another reason why, like maybe some other movies, like Call Me by Your Name and Lady Bird. Um, or, I mean, just like uh, more, like we you've talked about more predictable movies. We've seen things that challenge predictability and like actually do surprise you, like Staying Vertical. That uh, the bar was raised, <laughs> and, and this it, is directed by Aline uh, Griardi. I want to yeah. say is how you pronounce it. Who directed Did Stranger, Stranger by, by the Lake, Lake which yes. I loved. Yeah, and uh, you know it's a a very sexy Hitchcockian kind of thriller that takes place, I think, in one location on the beach. Yes, um, but yeah, I think uh, I think he's a really interesting director, and I want to see more from him. Um, and like anything goes in his world, sometimes like. 
obviously there's there's you know explicit sexuality, but I think it has um, a very strong context behind it. It's not explicit in that regard. It's actually character driven, and uh, well, I mean, it's explicit. It's not gratuitous. Well, yeah, yeah, not not yeah. gratuitous, right? And I th- I just like this this guy as he's roaming through life, kind of aimlessly. Um, Again, it's like a, a very, very much like a deconstruction of, of, of masculinity and the place that he's supposed to, to find in his life. He can't seem to, or at least, you know, um, stay with it, or at least, you know, like he, he feels trapped and he kind of wants to wander on through life. And I think a lot of a lot of people in general do feel that in society in general is like, oh my god, if I stay with this one person, uh, you know, my life is over. And I think he, it's challenging that idea. Um, and then on top of it, it's got some of the biggest laughs I've had in a while. Um, there's, a, you know, a, an older gentleman character and uh, <laughs> how things play out there is really uh, special. Um, so, like, I often have a disconnect with certain movies that maybe, like, are, are, to some would be too quirky or too eccentric or, you know, like idiosyncratic or just, I don't know, like like a Brigsby Bear or Clown or there's just a lot of movies where it's darkly funny and yet it's creating these really eccentric characters that don't seem to take place in the real world, but yet you can relate to them somehow. This one is kind of does it right in every way. Um, I, think, I think the thing this, that separates this from a lot of those movies is it's not – it's absurd and it's not yeah. trying to be realistic. Right, right. And, it, and it's my kind of absurdity. Right. So – uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say, and I don't want to say any more. Cool, cool. Uh, well, wanna... well, let's see what other people had to say. Let's see what other people had to say, Jim. Horace, uh, a lifelong fan that uh, emailed. Uh, I, I will not make any Monster Squad references because I, I don't know if Patrick would know what that means. I don't. I, okay, I've never seen Monster right. Squad. Okay. Um, so anyway, in no particular order, order he has "Call Me by Your Name." A Quiet Passion, Faces Places, LA 92. I did not see LA 92. That's another neither, one. Neither I have I. I neither have I. And I'm, I, I'm, I've heard good things. The Florida Project, Blade Runner 2049, Columbus, Dunkirk, The Disaster Artist, and Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, which I don't know anything about. It's about the guy who created Wonder Woman oh, okay. and his relationships with women. Was his name Professor Marston? Got to assume. Okay. Jonathan Anderson, I haven't been able to see the Phantom Threads of yet. And I missed a couple movies that I feel like I should have seen. Like Coco, the killer. <laughs> I, I am the, the worst accents in the world. Killing of a Sacred Deer and Actually, Blade Runner you know, you're missing a whole page. <laughs> did I really? What did I skip? Well, Colin's supposed to be next. Oh, I got this backwards then. Okay. We'll talk about Jonathan Anderson a little later. But now Jeez. we got to know Colin Suter. His number 10 was Loveless. His number 9 was Stronger, a film I did not see. Good. Uh, his number 8 was The Work, which is that uh, prison uh, documentary. Uh, his number 7 was The Florida Project. His number 6 was War for the Planet of the Apes. I've heard good things. Yeah, I'm, I didn't like that new series, so okay. I haven't bothered. But his number 5 was Your Name. His number 4 was Dunkirk. His number 3 was Lucky. His number 2 was A Ghost Story. And his number 1 was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It's Patrick, Thank what's you, next? What, what is next? I guess number what, 7 is next. Is Let's it? talk about Wormwood. Yeah, I've yet to finish it, but um, I'm halfway through. 
and I'm loving what I what I've seen so far. I am fascinated by MK Ultra and that whole mm-hmm. um, cons- not conspiracy, but what was it? I guess a project that collection of conspiracies. Collection of conspiracies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, um, and it's it's Errol Morris doing Errol Morris very well, but also this time. There's a lot more fiction involved, or not? Well, I mean, react re- reenactments. Yes. So that's one of the strange things about Wormwood. Wormwood is this mini series on Netflix, but it's it's also aired as a theatrical film. And as a series, it it is very slow to give you info. The story uh, it is about the death of uh, Frank Olson, a um, who scientist who worked for the military. Uh, he died under unusual circumstances, and it's about his son Eric Olson's. Uh, sort of lifelong attempt to uncover the facts behind his father's death. Uh, his father fell out of a hotel room window, or, or was pushed, he? or jumped, or you know. Yeah. So it is about him uncovering this. The story of Eric Olson figuring this out could be instead of a six-part, like five-hour uh, sort of a film, it could be an a hundred-minute movie. The the actual story itself in the hands of another filmmaker would not be this long. And as a result, it feels very dragged out, especially if you watch it the way you would watch a TV show where you like watch an episode one night and you watch an episode the next night and you watch an episode the next night. The, the way it parses out info is too slow to be satisfying in that way. Mm. What Errol Morris is actually sort of up to here is this is not about MK Ultra really. Um, this is not uh, about. I mean, there it, it goes. It goes very briefly into the idea that, like, you know, the mysterious death that happened to Frank Olson has happened to several others throughout the history. Um, but mostly, it is about Eric Olson, his son, and about the lengths that Eric Olson will go to to find out the truth. What can be found out about the truth? What of the truth exists, and what can be done with that information once you find it out? Um, mm. And it is. Uh, so it's a documentary, and it has extensive reenactments with uh, – what's that guy's name? Peter Sarsgaard. Peter Sarsgaard playing his father, some other good character actors appearing elsewhere. Um, you know, you, you got Bob Balaban. You got uh, – Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson was very good in it. Uh, but it's – and it sort of plays as this separate TV show that's happening during the documentary because these scenes yeah. – it's not just – uh, you hear Eric Olson's voice describing something, and then you see a person acting it out the way reenactments generally work in this mm-hmm. format. They are long, drawn-out scenes, and sometimes scenes of events that we already know happened via what we've seen. So it, it's not scenes that are there to give us new information. The idea of this movie is that we are watching these reenactment scenes separately as an almost TV show, and these reenactment scenes are based off of what Eric Olson's theory of what happened is at any given moment during his decades and decades yeah. of trying to uncover the truth. And it is these stories he is telling himself, basically. Um, Did it happen this way? And then, and then, and, but then he discovers more information. Uh, so basically he, he is first told that his father fell out of an open window on the 14th floor of a hotel of a hotel and fell to his death on the, the streets of New York. Uh, then he discovers that his father was experimented on with LSD by the CIA and that he that he jumped out because he was high on LSD. Then he discovers more about what his father was doing and he and he, and about what actually happened 
And he keeps getting closer and closer, but it's that thing where if you have a flea that can jump half the length of a football field, and then it can jump half of that length uh, with its next jump, and then it can jump half of that length with its next jump, it'll keep getting closer to the end zone, but it will never reach it because Ooh. because the because it's uh, exponentially smaller steps it's taking. And it's about this way, the information, the closer he gets, the more agonizing it becomes and the less in reach uh, the truth can be. And about basically how he ruined his life, there's also this really interesting running parallel that Errol, only Errol Morris would draw out, which is this running parallel to Hamlet. Because obviously oh, Hamlet yeah, yeah, yeah. destroys himself trying to find out who killed his father. Um, and so we see lots of clips of Laurence Olivier's Hamlet um, for like 1949 film or whatever. But and it is, and he draws tons of parallels to the to Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Um, and as you're watching these stories, you're getting invested in the reenactments as if they were their own separate TV show. But you're not. But it does the thing. The thing that TV shows do now, and the thing I've like complained about TV shows when people say TV is great. I always say TV is not great. TV is great at getting you to watch the next episode. And that is the story of Eric Olson is he he learns just enough to make him crave more information. And that is sort of the TV show format. And it is agonizing in a way that is not clear for like the first three or four episodes even before you really understand what Eric Olson put himself through and what he gave up and lost to discover what happened to the murder of his father. Like those reenactments seem su- completely superfluous. Errol Morris directed one feature fictional film before this. It was It's widely regarded as terrible. I have not seen it personally, but like it, it's widely regarded as just like a huge misstep in his, in his work. Um, he is not good at directing actors. Like he, those scenes... Those scenes, those reenactments are not that good. They kind of look like just basic-ass prestige TV style. Um, The actual documentary itself has a lot of great Errol Morris style, including split screens and, like, um, you'll see clips, you know, you'll see archival footage. But because it's a widescreen format and he doesn't want to block off the screen black bars, you'll see the archival footage playing on a television in one screen and yeah. then playing in uh in a, on the split screen on the other half of the screen. Love that shit. It's <sighs> so good. And and it really hits all of Errol Morris's pet sort of themes about the subjectivity uh, uh, of truth Earth, and yeah. and sort of a people who are so obsessive that they will destroy themselves chasing after this thing. And what the lack of closure can lack do. Lack of closure. The there is a little twist at the, in the last episode of this movie that is one of the most brilliant. It, I like if if Errol Morris was a screenwriter and he had invented this instead of this just being actually how the story was told, I would say he's one of the greatest screenwriters of all time. It is so like a brilliant little dagger push at the very end. And well, I don't, don't wanna, give it away entirely. And no, no, I'm not going to. But I'm just going to say, hmm. um, as one work that you watch and you get obsessed over and you and you even get like agonized as far as like you get tired of the reenactments and you're like let's get back to the documentary because the documentary is where I'm getting my dopamine hits of new information of course this documentary the, the reenactments feel like I'm wallowing in them like it is such a brilliantly constructed thing um hmm. I am so into it. It is not really about MK Ultra, and that can be a little disappointing for some people. It is a little bit for me, but I'm not like I didn't expect that. Either. I think it works in a way that no Errol Morris documentary has worked in a long time. 
like probably I probably say is his best thing since um, maybe Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Or Tabloid was good. I no, I I like pretty much all of his movies, but yeah. but I think it is his best. Like it is his most complete thought since mm. something like Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and I think it is absolutely brilliant. Good. I'm glad to even, hear it. Even in the ways that, like, at first when you watch it, you're like, this is kind of shitty. Like, those pay off. Mm. Um, but only when you watch it as a film and not as a TV show. Number seven for me? Yes. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. All right. I and thought that was going to be your number one. I know. Everybody thinks that, right? <laughs> anyway, um, again, I rewatched it with people's issues in mind and they were a little more apparent to me this time. I mean, I saw this without, you know, I saw this like a month before it came out and didn't know anything, hadn't heard any kind of reaction other than it might have played a couple of festivals and everybody was praising it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I walked in knowing like, okay, Martin McDonough, he's a great screenwriter. I love his dialogue. I like, you know, I especially love him Bruges. And I kind of expect this, like, caustic sense of humor and yeah. just be really, you know, confrontational. And uh, you get that. You get that. <laughs> you get a lot of that. You get a lot of that. Uh, and, yeah, I, I do feel like people people's reactions to this are interesting because I feel like it's it's a movie about finding empathy even in the most despicable people. Like... The scene where, you know, Woody Harrelson has just arrested Francis McDormand and they're sort of confronting each other face to face. You know, they both have these perceptions of one another and they're both addressing them in that moment. And then suddenly reality hits and he coughs up blood on her and suddenly she turns into this mother figure and like feels horrible and just has a complete change of heart in a split second. And I think that's kind of what the film is about. I think it's about challenging your expectations and shooting down your prejudices of a person and looking beyond your hate and your anger. I mean, the only thing that kind of bugs me about the movie is just like at one point a character says, you know, is quoting something and saying, you know, anger begets more anger or something along those lines. And I think like, well, that's kind of what the movie's about too. But I also think it's just... And people who really find it like upsetting that Sam Rockwell's character has a change of heart and has an arc and, you know, he's this racist cop who deserves, you know, total damnation. I, I don't know. It's like I, I I try to find empathy even in somebody or I try to find something. I find a redeeming quality and he sort of finds that too. I think he finds that after going through this horrible tragedy of losing one of his close friends, the sheriff, and then going through this fire. Um, but, like, I mean, I understand the screenplay does spoon-feed a lot. A lot of, like, the criticisms I've heard and read were, like, this movie kind of hits you over the head a lot with what it's about or what it's trying to say. Or it does, you know, like, characters do change unexpectedly at times, but I didn't find it to be implausible either. So, I don't know. I like I like everything about this movie, and most people are finding it kind of um, morally reprehensible and saying that, like, well, Martin McDonough is this Irish guy with a really, um, I don't know, one-dimensional view on America, you know, and particularly in 
this part of Missouri or whatever. And I didn't get that impression at all. I really didn't. I mean, I think that some of the, some of the, uh, the the tricks and tools to go from scene to scene and have, like you mentioned, maybe there's some conveniences throughout the movie to make the story progress a little bit. But I didn't find those off-putting in any way. So I think, you know, in terms of a great ensemble, it doesn't get much better than this. Some very, very interesting things to say about how we interact together at a very, you know, volatile time in, in, in this country, too. So um, what, what were your reservations? Specifically? I, mean, I already went to my reservations earlier. I will say this. If you make a movie only about white main characters and it's about how those white main characters who are virulent racists who are absolutely awful, not just not just bigoted, but mm-hmm. actively violent towards people of color, how they actually have good hearts, fuck that shit. Fuck that shit. Yeah. That is not how you tell that story. That is not... that is, Like, the moral that actually maybe Nazis are okay, fuck that shit. I, I would be way more offended if I thought the movie had a coherent political view, but I don't think it does. Mm-hmm. I, I like I and you know I I'm there are parts of In Bruges that offend me like they're like I went into Martin McDonough fully expecting to have a lot of the humor feel tasteless and and shitty to me he does which is, he does rely on the word midget a lot right like that that's another aspect like all of the people who get redeemed in this movie are the fucking straight white people who are hostile towards everyone who is not that mm. and fuck that shit like. Full out, like that's that's not like a nice, wonderful message for our times right now. Well, I'm, I'm not saying like, I, I, I'm not. Why saying, are there no people I'm of color say- who are full characters? I'm not saying that. Uh, if this movie has Sam- anything to say about race, why are there no people of color that are full characters? You mean like full dimensional? Right. They only exist have- in relationship to white people around them. Very briefly, I might add. Yeah. The, the the new police sergeant. The new comes. police sergeant is also very unbelievable. The idea that throwing someone out a window only merits him getting fired and not any action beyond that. Right? Yeah. Like no, that's. That, I mean, that's. But I thought whatever. it was. I thought that was going to happen. To be honest, but it didn't. Right. Um, I'm not, even the I'm not, saying, like, not, I'm not a, saying that Sam Rockwell should be forgiven. I'm not saying that like he has, suddenly has a good heart. Or he's had a good heart this whole time. Mm-hmm. I think Woody Harrelson does state that. Like, you're a good person at heart. Right. I think he does which say he, that. Which he does not. I don't feel that way. Yeah. And I don't... Like, the ending is sort of suggesting, like, you know, these people have maybe changed for the better. They're not going to go and enact this revenge. But I think that it leaves the door open to that. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Um, personally, I don't... You know, it's not like suddenly I, I like Sam Rockwell now. It's not that at all. Um, but I do think, like, you know, the scene in the hospital is trying to suggest, like, even the person next to him, again, very convenient. Right. That in this the, small town, no one would think to not yeah. put them in two rooms. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I do think the hand the, the handing of the orange juice is a nice gesture. And I'm not saying, like, he should be forgiven outright. And I don't think he is in that moment. It's just a nice gesture to do to somebody to say, hey, this is how people should be, man, and not like the way you are. You know, so I... I, If if that is the full message, is that people should be nicer, like that's some (laughs) milk toast ass shit. And then then using the backdrop of 
like systemic violence uh, against people of color by police as that message, fuck that shit. It's certainly questionable in its use to use that right yeah and not address it in any meaningful way Mm, no i don't i don't think it does entirely no i think it's more just in the background and that's uncomfortable (laughs) i think he chooses that because that is how you keep people off guard because again i think the key i think the key purpose of this film is to catch you off guard and to give you a and to give you what you're not expecting and i think by being offensive, by being in your face, by by operating in those spaces, that is the only use of that is to him is to surprise the audience, is to shock the audience, and like For shock value. Yes, hmm. no, absolutely. There's okay. shock value in this, and I think like I can accept that. Like I don't need to agree with the movie's politics 100 percent to you know. And again, like I think this movie is so disjointed in what it is trying to say or whatever. Like. Hmm. It do, it just doesn't have a strong point of view as far as that sort of thing goes, and like that in itself is kind of offensive. But like I'm not, I'm you know I'm not super offended by this movie, um, and I can enjoy it on a, a lot of people are, basis. and I'm fa- I'm kind of fascinated by the reaction to this. Yeah, well I I don't I feel them. I feel almost like I, I wouldn't say like I'm oblivious or blissfully ignorant. Sometimes I guess I can be naive, but. I guess on a first viewing, I mean, I've seen it twice, but on the first viewing, I didn't pick up on most of the stuff that people immediately got. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, hmm, maybe there's a reason yeah. for that. And, you know, again, it's like I'm not as in touch sociologically or politically as some people, but at the same time, you know, as as a screenplay, uh, I, th- I thought it was very strong. And I thought, you know, f- character to character, a lot of interesting dynamics throughout. Um I, I, I do feel uncomfortable with the central um, the, the the basically the murder happened because of you know the mother being so cruel enough to be like I hope you get raped on the way right like, that that's, is a shocking thing that is trying to shock the audience yeah I don't I don't necessarily like that that that's something that didn't sit well with me in a second viewing and feels more manipulative than anything else but I guess a lot of people are picking up on a lot of manipulation throughout this movie right that is I'm I mean that I'm not. It is what the movie is made out of. Okay. <laughs> it's like the basic building block of three billboards for me is manipulation. And again, like that doesn't mean it's bad. I it's in my top twenty five for a reason. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I'm just I'm but, it's one of those movies where I was yeah. like, gosh, I wanna see why people are so offended by it. And I feel silly for thinking when it was over, like, I bet everybody's gonna love this movie. Yeah. Huh. yeah. You win some, you lose some. Okay, let's win some Remember, lists. I thought I thought Cheap Thrills was going to become a big cult favorite, but well, no one should. remembers Cheap Thrills anymore. It should. I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone liked Cheap Thrills as much as me. I kind of am afraid that the same thing will happen to Tragedy Girls. Do you want to read some more? Matthew Morrison hit me. He gives special shout outs to Twin Peaks: The New Season and Alias Grace on Netflix, as well as other faves. His number ten was Lady Bird. His number nine was Star Wars The Last Jedi. His number eight was John Wick Chapter 2. Number seven is Columbus. Mm -hmm. Number six was Phantom Thread. His number five was Staying Vertical. Oh. His number four was The Meyerowitz Stories. His number three was Blade Runner 2049. Number two is Baby Driver. And number one is Get Out. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you, Matthew. 
Jonathan Anderson. Grab another water. Go ahead. Go ahead. Jonathan Anderson. He's here, too. Uh, he says, I haven't been able to see Phantom Thread as of yet, and I missed a couple movies that I feel I should have seen, like Coco, Killing of a Sacred Deer, and Blade Runner 2049. But I feel fairly good about this list, and will probably continue to feel that way until next weekend when PTA throws the whole order into question. <laughs> Number 10, The Big Sick. Number 9, Columbus. Number 8, The Shape of Water. Number 7, Mother. Number 6, T2, Train Spotting 2, huh. Terminator Judgments. <laughs> Number 5, The Salesman. That is the official title. I don't know why I you're laughing. I don't know what's happening. Number 4, I Am Not Your Negro. Number 3, Colossal. Number 2, The Florida Project. And number 1, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah, a lot of people love it. What can I say? And some people hate it. That's true. Patrick, what's yeah. your number, Sharks? Oh, are we on number 6 now? Yeah. Get out. All right. Can I come back in now? Welcome back. All right, great. Thank you. Now, really, what is your number six film of 2017? Get Out. No, we're not doing it again. <laughs> um, yeah, Get Out. It's a really, really sharp horror comedy. It sure is. And the, you know, the <laughs> the, the political aspect of Get Out is right there to be seen. It's mm-hmm. it's not going to be missed by anyone, but I think one of the things that makes Get Out great that maybe not it's not talked about as much is sort of the brilliance of and I can't remember the character and I didn't write down his actor's name and I feel really bad, but the best friend who works at TSA. Oh god. Um operating as this sort of it almost feels more like Cabin in the Woods to me than anything. Like he <laughs> is he is the person at, who is the audience mouthpiece who is just saying the things that it that the audience wants to shout at the screen like yeah, the movie's yeah. called Get Out and he is telling him no you have to leave and it is sort of not just undercutting any sort of audience audience uh, credibility things as far as like uh, why would he still be there at this point like you have a you have a character saying that but he is so funny um, and maybe I should have picked him as a supporting actor if I was gonna if I was gonna gender the uh, acting categories but like he is so funny and he is. So, um, he, I'm trying, like, he, he adds so much lightness and, uh, he light, he opens up the tone of that movie considerably because as just a strict horror movie, all of the microaggressions that, uh, the main character deals with, like in those little interactions and you just see his face and you just see him sort of, you see his smile twitch a bit and that's about all. And that's why I think Daniel, uh, Kaluuya is so, is so great in it, but um, like I think all of that works in the sort of way you might expect the guy from Key and Peele to make a horror film work, which is like it kind of feels like a good. I'm not saying this to be diminishing, but like it feels like a really good sort of sketch comedy version of a horror movie, where it's like we take this sketch comedy, this we, we take this horror movie premise of. People in a house where they, you know, like they bad things are going to happen, and the audience can tell, but the the main character can't. And what it feels like to, you know, meet your your girlfriend's white parents for the first time, and like it combines them in a way that's like very sketch driven. Um, and I think all that stuff is really brilliant. I think it's a good looking movie. I I like that uh, Jordan Peele. Uh, you know, I don't think he's necessarily like a great visualist, but he at the very least has good taste as far as the kind of styles he's ripping off. Like, sure. he definitely mostly watches, or at the very least, he's definitely mostly influenced by horror movies from the 70s. 
Um, and he has a good restrained style that is uncommon in horror these days. I think his, I think, yeah, just the camera and editing and everything is just like a, a very classical approach that is not common um, outside of like, I think, I think James Wan can sometimes do that when he feels driven to. Uh, and then sometimes James Wan can make Saw. But, uh, but like, I think Jordan Peele does a good job of supporting his script I don't think it's like a brilliant horror movie or whatever. I I just think the that first hour or so was so strong and seeing it with an audience and feeling that audience feel this movie was so powerful. Um and I think it works as just like I think the metaphor falls apart. Um because I think the blackness is in the explanation is more arbitrary than it should be. Um, yeah, I think that's what, got, given, that's what got to me. I think I think maybe, and you know, this is me putting words into someone else's mouth, but I, it feels like maybe Jordan Peele didn't want the cliche of the black athlete, and so he made him a photographer. But if he made him a black athlete or a, a rapper or someone else that like is taking advantage of the coolness uh, of the quote unquote like coolness and credibility of being black that that apparently these characters want, like that would. That would draw out the metaphor more, but him being a photographer, like you said, like if, you know, if he was a white photographer, the blind man would still want his body. Yeah, he just, just says, as much. "I want your eyes." Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh. There's a lot of little things he does throughout, which is uh, like Jordan Peele has a good <laughs> he 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 knows what the internet is, and so he knows that people are going to be like looking for the hidden clues and messages and stuff in Get Out. And there's a lot of like little touches he do he does that are really good as far as um just just little things that echo on each other um set like setups and punchlines that are sort of subtle that I didn't notice the first time that when I rewatched it you know he's like he you know he's saying I don't want you to, I don't want your dad chasing me out of the house with a shotgun and it turns out to be her that chases her out of the him out of the oh, house yeah, with a rifle yeah. and like um Good the call. the dad the 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 grandfather who's in the sort of the gardener's body he he lost to Jesse Owens in the track meet so he so like that's why he's running all the time, right? Right, just, right, like, right. That's him taking advantage of his mm-hmm. body. The grandma in the maid's outfit makes less sense, but <laughs> yeah, like I don't yeah. know what she's getting at necessarily. But like that's but that's fine. But like there's a lot of stuff that's good there. And even though the set the sort of metaphor falls apart at the end, I do think like the climax is an exciting uh, horror climax that is well staged. I apparently I think the, re- the 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 Blu-ray has an alternate ending. I, I think it's more darker. And I actually really like the way it ends I, as it is. I knew how it was going to end, and I was like, Jordan Peele, don't you do this to me right now. And the fact that it was that it was his friend, I think Rod is the friend's name, yeah. for the TSA, and like that to me was just like the biggest gift of 2017. <laughs> Basically, it was like I was in like just a fucking terrible place, and just like watching this movie and thinking about where we were, and then just like seeing that ending coming and no and like knowing that it's like this motherfucker has seen Night of the Living Dead. He knows how this movie ends. Yeah. And that he chooses to make it a happy ending. Like, oh what a gift. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right? I know. It like felt, this movie it felt refreshing. Also, little gift to himself, this movie would not have made a hundred million dollars if it ended like Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> I thought for sure it was gonna end like Intruder with the victims being arrested. Well not arrested not arrested. <laughs> or He's killed. a black man. Yeah. He's going to get shot to death by the cops. Yeah. Like like that is how that movie right, ends. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. True. True. Um and yeah, the fact that he wasn't, I was just like, oh, thank Christ. Um, I yeah, get out. 
has been talked to death all this year. I don't necessarily have so much to add, but I do think in spite of some pretty big flaws, like it just works beautifully and and I love the fact that it's it struck a chord and you know a lot of people are connecting with it and it's going to be up for awards. It is it is it's not it's not a movie you would expect that from movies, way early uh, in February. Movies about race are never allowed to be this, which is yeah. modern. Movies about race are always about racism that ex- was experienced in the past because Right, right, right. Even though people who know what's going on can watch it and say this is still happening now, this is speaking to us now, it allows cer- a certain segment of white people that they need to get in to pay their tickets to have that plausible deniability of like, yeah. oh, I'm so glad that doesn't exist anymore. I'm so glad we have the same bathrooms. <laughs> Everything's fine. Like, no, it does not let you off the hook. It does not make the the evil white people to be just like bigots going like, yo, bro, what's up? Like, uh, like it is, it, it's a lot more subtle and interesting that it does not let liberals off the hook. Like, right, it, right. De- it is so contemporary in a way that uh, not just horror movies, but movies about things never really about race, I should say, never allow themselves to be. Um, and it is so smart in so many ways, and it was so satisfying to watch. Um, and it was so satisfying to watch it become successful and like see Jordan For Peele. Sure. Yeah, he deserves it. Also, like Key and Peele is one of the funniest fucking like sketch comedy shows of all time. Like that. That show is unbelievably good. Like Key and Keegan Michael Key and Jordan Peele are astoundingly talented people. But I also walked into this knowing, yeah, I saw Keanu and I yeah. was like, eh. exactly, exactly. I too saw Keanu and I shrugged. So and I was really afraid that it was going to be Dave Chappelle thing, where it was like, I like Chappelle's show and now I can't deal with him anymore. Like I was really afraid that they were just going to, you know, Kevin Hart's another like super funny person who in films is absolutely wasted 100% of the time except for Top 5, that Chris Rock movie. But, like, <laughs> um, uh, but other than that, like, so I was, like, really fearing for Jor- uh, for Key and Peele's, like, post the Comedy Central career. And I love that Jordan Peele now has, like, all the clout in the world. They're like, do you want to make Akira? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> like, that's how Hollywood yeah. works, though. No, that's true. That's true. I mean, he did... He did he, but he should be able to do whatever he wants Right now. now. And I'm hoping he continues to make interesting, challenging He says he, he's going to, and, you know, he's also going to help nurture younger filmmakers yeah. with good ideas. Yeah, no, he seems like his head's in the right place. So it's exciting to see where he goes. Maybe that should have been my best director debut. I completely that's forgot true. about it. Yeah, no, That he, was ridiculous no, of me. Um, but a, yeah, that's my number six. A director that's been along around for a long time goes by the name of Terrence Davies, and I, I guess, runs hot and cold. But then again, like the only time I think he he, he ran cold with me was uh, last year with Sunset Song, which mm-hmm. uh didn't click with me at all. This one really did, um, and yet I wasn't sure at first that it would. Because it starts off as not necessarily a conventional biopic, but it's really, you know, it's a period piece. It's about a poet by the name of Emily Dickinson. You may have heard of her. Uh, And, you know, uh, I I, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about this. And I put it off for a long time. You know, I know um, Bill Ackerman was a huge fan when he saw it at the New York Film Festival. And yet I was kind of like, okay... I didn't. I didn't like Sunset Song, but I loved the um, Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea, yes, and uh, also his uh, autobiographical film um, 
about when he's a young boy. It's really great. It's on Criterion, and I can't remember the name of it, but anyway. Is that The Long Day Closes? Yeah. I think that's it. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> You're um, welcome. Cynthia Nixon as Emily Dickinson is... Uh, it's so... I mean, I, I can see why why people maybe just said, well, it's a period piece about a poet. Ugh. I don't know. But it's really an incredible script. There's so much good stuff in this. What is happening? <laughs> we get we get delirious I as guess these things so. go on. We've been doing it a while. Um, but yeah, I just uh, similar to like Love and Friendship. What I was like, la- like last year I think it was, or the year before, where it was kind of Wed Stillman does a period piece. <laughs> this this time, same thing happened. Where it was like. I am so into this. I'm so into the interactions. I'm so into these characters. And it has, it really does only take place in one location. It really is just about Emily Dickinson inhabiting this house that she's grown up in most of her life with, with her family and her sisters. And once her, her father passes away, it really becomes transcendent and really, really beautiful. And you see her struggling with her success and her talent to the point of um, isolation, isolationism, and also, uh, I believe she developed a rare form of epilepsy or something along those lines. And there are unflinching, really intense scenes of her uh, in bed with this illness, and whew, it's heavy stuff. Um, like I said, it does move very slowly for a while, but once you start interacting with these people more and more. Or, I mean, once they start interacting more and more with each other, uh, I really do feel it's one of the best screenplays of the year because there's so much quotable dialogue um, and there's really great outbursts of emotion that don't feel forced. It's very natural. It flows nicely. Uh, but again, like I, I can understand if you really don't want to sit through a period piece about poetry, it, it may just not be your thing. But for me, it was. I watched the first 30 minutes of this, and there were, it was not the period piece thing so much, because I love a lot of Terrence Dobby. All of his films are period pieces, and uh, I love a lot of his work, um, especially uh, House of Mirth. Oh, yeah, that's one I need to see. That one's really good. I bet I would love it. Um, the, the thing that drove me away is, A, I don't understand poetry, and B, I don't understand spirituality. And this There's is about that. those yeah. two things. Yeah. At least first 30 minutes were mostly about those two things. It moves beyond that. I mean, they're still there, but it really does become more of a direct character study mm-hmm. of somebody's life slowly. I felt I just apart. I just felt like my person and this is not anything about the film. This is just about like things I just don't understand in humans like my personal hang-ups with people's spirituality and with like the meaning of poetry meant that I couldn't get invested in that character at all because it was just like she was as much a mystery to me I think she was just talking about things in terms of God and she was just like you hear the poems that she's writing and yeah I just don't have an ear for poet like I hear mm-hmm. a poetry and it is nothing more than a clumble uh, like a jumble of words mm-hmm. so that's just yeah it's that a was compelling a- mystery that develops over time mm-hmm. I, I would love to give this another shot but yeah I would I, I bounced mean, off pretty like, cause, hard like I again like I think it was first 20 minutes for me where I was like struggling with it and I, don't, I went am I going to be able to get through this and then it gets better mm-hmm. way better and you know there, there's some very 
intense dialogue between sisters that I felt like, you know, most siblings maybe have experienced something similar. So it's really good, a really good portrayal of a family, but also a really great character study of one of the greatest poets of all time. Pretty good. Pretty How about good. We read some more lists. Oh, good. Sounds delish. Okay, we are at Rolf or Rafe mm-hmm. Eichhorn, who's a listener. He says, you guys are doing a year 2017 show. That is great news! Thank you so much for that. His list is as follows. Number 10 is Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled, which I liked. Number 9 is Harmonium, which I don't know about. Number 8 is The Unknown Girl, which I haven't seen. Number 7 is Shockwave. Number 6 is Close Knit, huh? Number 5 is Jawbone. (laughs) Number 4 is... (laughs) A salesman. Um, number three is I, Daniel Blake. Number two is The Other Side of Hope. And number one is uh, Patrick's least favorite movie of the year, The Ghost Story. What say you? You just said, huh? Like, <laughs> like I don't know what happened. I don't know either. I was like, close-knit, huh? I was like, what is are that? We, are we talking Declan now? Yeah, let's 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 do Declan. Okay, Declan here from Ireland. I love the podcast Old and New. And Declan, my 2018 gift to you is I'm not going to try to do an Irish accent. His number 10 is Lady Bird. He called it brilliant. He said number 9 is Call Me By Your Name. Best score soundtrack ever. I don't remember the score in that film. I remember the music. It had good music. Good um, 80s Suf- new wave. Sufjan Stevens. Oh, that's well. Indie folk darling. No wonder I didn't recognize, I didn't remember it. Uh, number eight, Lean on Pete. Definitely high is best. Better than the book. I don't know that one. Lean on Pete. Number seven was Loveless. Possibly Zantiev's best. Uh, direct- Russian director of Re- Leviathan. That's right. Number six, You Were Never Really Here. Does Pickpocket better than Pickpocket and Taxi Driver better than Paxi- Taxi Driver? Bold Number statement. five was The Killing of a Sacred Deer, best horror comedy in years. Number four was The Meyerowitz Stories, probably my favorite Bombach. Number three was Good Time, Bresson on Acid, so there's another Pickpocket reference there. Number two, Phantom Thread. I'm loving PTA's three latest movies way more than the five previous ones. And his number one was... Three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, just perfect. But then again, Martin McDonough, maybe maybe a little national oh. pride there. Maybe that's what's going on. We'll see. We won't see, but I just um, said you, it anyway. You were never really here. Um, is not out. In, I think it just played Con <laughs> and a couple other festivals. I've, I've seen some reports from festivals. It seems I very can, interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to see Joaquin Phoenix hit it out of the park again. My number five is Personal Shopper. Oh. Uh Oh, people, oh! People who listen to our top ten list uh, from 2015, I went on and on and on about Closet Sales Maria, and honestly, like Personal Shopper is just more of that. I think the thing Olivier Asias does um, in his scripts and direction pairs so well with what Kristen Stewart does as an actor. It's really, it's just like an unbelievable pair. I love watching her go about the mundanities of a job she doesn't particularly like. I love the sort of... Like, she's fully emotionally present, but she only registers her emotion in the very specific way that you do when you're at a job you hate, but you can't actually express how much you hate the job. And it's just through this, like, sort of uh, contained hostility. Um, I think the movie is really fascinating in how... 
uh, beguiling it is. It is just like it is so willing to go out on a limb and be unusual and make bold choices. It does. It is not about. Are there or aren't there ghosts? Like, it makes very bold decisions. Like, no, this is real. There are mediums and there are ghosts. And that sort of supernatural context for a modern art film that takes place in contemporary society is really rare. Speaking of contemporary society, the way uh, Olivia Assias uh, integrates technology into his stories is incredible. Um, just the way people are on their phones, like the texting throughout this, the... There's the, uh, the, you know, she's watching these YouTube videos about this artist who invented avant-garde art uh, or abstract art as a way of, like, in- talking to the dead. Uh, she watched, like, someone tells her, there's a character that says, I don't remember the name, but if you look up Victor Hugo TV movie turning tables on YouTube, you'll be able to find it. And that is the sort of thing that you say in real life but is never said in movies. It's just that kind of awkward, yeah. like... Like, oh, there was this thing I saw. It was like that. And, like, and she's watching this like TV movie on YouTube. And I, turns out I find that really relatable. There's also some really interesting things going on with uh, her gender expression. She's uh, – as far as like – she's very butch throughout most of the movie. But she is sort of like stepping into these like un – just like unbelievably – gorgeous expensive feminine clothes and like bondage gear and like lingerie and dresses and heels and like she's like just trying this stuff on and uh, it's this sort of very strange expression of alienation because Kristen Stewart is so butch um it's I uh, I love there's so many little things that like what it actually means I actually have no idea there's like sort of a plot twist that happens towards the end uh involving a ghost in a hotel room that is... I don't exactly know what's going on there. Uh, yeah, that's kind of a mystery. Yeah, there's like there's some very bold, weird mysteries that like I can't say, like, oh, it's brilliant because I just don't know. But like I'm totally fine with that because it is, uh, it is so good at that. And it is good at being scary, too. Like, when, it, when she discovers the body of her employer... Um, Ooh, or when, yeah. she, when she turns on her phone and then she gets all of those messages coming in, that is such a brilliant conceit. Uh, that is, like, such a brilliant Hitchcockian sort of a thriller moment of, like, the messages revealing that he's been texting the entire time he's been coming towards her. And it starts with, like, I'm in a cab. I'm in the building. I'm coming up. I'm outside your door. You know, like, it's so good. I, yeah, I don't I don't – I can't make a claim for this to be – necessarily like brilliant uh or uh complete in the same way clouds of sales maria is and there's definitely not as many of those little touches that i adored in clouds of sales maria but it's still just like watching those two work together is one of my favorite things yeah i if we were still um doing director's club full time i would i would avidly suggest we cover his other work because i find it fascinating yeah, he has a lot of weird stuff like I've heard. Demon Lover and Boarding yeah. Gate and Yeah, I don't know a lo- I don't know his entire um filmography yet and I'm curious more and more about it and I'm curious to revisit Clouds of Sils Maria sooner than later because I concur with everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um I I'm going to go off in a different direction here. Sure, which you never find. With a with a film that uh you know, I think kind of spells everything out is very straightforward, is quite beloved. Um and it is uh oh it's Jonathan Demi's beloved twist no i'm just kidding um it is 
The Florida Project. All right. Uh, I, I too was a huge fan of Tangerine. I think, I think this one maybe maybe it's in its portrayal of childhood and sort of uh, just reckless abandonment sometimes, where they're just like running around or even kind of. Uh, calling out their parents and like saying, "Well, you know, you did a stupid thing, mom," and maybe like you know they're they're being playful and serious at the same time about those sort of things. But I just found it really, really engaging throughout. I found like all the characters, you know, again like their interactions. It's like it's like Lady in the Water done right because it's like in a, in a, in a complex full of people where they're all interacting with one another and sort of banding together maybe to just you know have a communal uh experience and will defoe carries it and kind of puts it all together and just goes from room to room and uh takes care of things that need to be taken care of i think it's a again a definition of a great supporting role for him um very sweet and sincere and i think that's why it stands out in will defoe's career is because he normally doesn't play somebody like this sure um he's usually kind of slimy and I, you know, like every interaction that the kids have together when they're just hanging out and playing felt fully, you know, um, real to me. And, you know, certainly the way things play out, I, I can I can understand that being predictable. But at the same time, the emotional payoff, I think, is there. I, I felt very, very moved. I felt melancholy and I felt like uh, just... It's never going to feel like that again. It's never going to feel like you can escape to this other world, like a like a Disney world. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a simple movie done right. I yeah. really do. I really love it. I yeah. think, you know, I don't know if it's profound or really is trying to say something significant that we haven't seen before, but the as a, a pure emotional experience and really dazzling in, in its you know in the use of color and uh, lighting throughout. I think it's I think it's just. A glorious film. <laughs> Have you seen Starlet? Sean Baker's movie he made. No, 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 no. I want to. No. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm curious because it does it does feel so much of a piece with Tangerine mm. in a lot of ways. Um, I, so I'm curious about the Florida Project. What is if and perhaps there is none, and this could be fine too. But there's just so much time spent with him. I was I, I spent a lot of time while I was watching that movie trying to work this out, and I never came up with an answer. What is the point of Willem Dafoe's character? What does he add to this story? I mean, he's just a maintenance man that holds things together. Right. Holds but you're down you're the talking force. as if, like, he's real. I'm saying Sean Baker wrote this script and said this character is here because blank. Uh, I enjoyed those scenes. I like Willem Dafoe in this movie. What is, how does his story relate to the story of the mother and the child? Like other is, than serving as the mediator, right? Because you don't need all of those scenes of him doing his daily maintenance work and just this observe, and that. observing the world. You know, I mean, we're just observing this entire environment that he is a part of. But you know, but there's like scenes of him like trying to argue with the woman at the pool. There's scenes of him like, oh yeah, I think with his son, like his son just doesn't want to work with him anymore, and him and, trying to sh- chase off the pedophile. You're right. Like, there's just so many of those scenes that have nothing to do with him observing. The mother and the child together, and yeah, I'm curious if you had like a take on that, or if you had like, because I was watching it and I was like waiting for his story and her story to be the same. I was waiting for them to have some kind of like 
relationship oh. or like he would mentor her or like he would reveal some of his backstory or something to happen and it or never did. Or there would be more of an arc to him or yeah. something? Yeah, I guess that may, I don't know if that I found that unsatisfying per se. I don't, I don't think I did either. I'm just, yeah, I'm just like, it was something I was thinking of as I was watching it. That I just couldn't bil- figure out why that was in the movie. It's a little bewildering, but don't all those places have... A, you know, like a, a guy that you can depend on in case something breaks. Well, sure, but there's also the woman who works there as well, and we don't spend all that time with her. Like, again, okay, just because those people exist doesn't mean that we have to have so many scenes with them. Yeah. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah. It's interesting. I just like spending time with them. <laughs> you know, I mean... So some people... Even, some like, people maybe they're like, detours, but I... Some people feel like his character is condescending in that it's like this is the end for the audience to be like think of themselves in that situation as like well I would be the kindly patient um, <laughs> like exasperated but still ultimately good hearted person who's observing all this this is my because I'm not that mother and I'm not that child but right. I need to identify with someone and like maybe his character is there only for mainstream audiences to have someone to identify with that's possible because that's shitty to me. Because like that's the thing that's so great about Tangerine is that there's no such character. Hmm. You know, I mean, I don't think he actively sat down and wrote him as that. Well, what? That's my question. What did he actively sit down and write him as? Well, just a, a guy that's hanging out in this world environment. I mean, I don't. He doesn't. I guess he doesn't have a, a major role in how things play but out. There's so much time spent with it. You don't just yeah. like say, well, this guy's in this environment because this guy's in this environment. Now let's write seven scenes where he has n- nothing yeah. to do with those two, two people. Like that is a discussion that is had. Mm. I mean, I'm I guess not, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't I'm mind. Not, I'm not even trying to say it as a knock against the movie. I enjoyed his, the, the stuff with him. I guess I just don't mind like when there's detours and digressions with an author, sure. with a supporting character I mean, does it add up to something? No. But I don't find that to be sure, yeah. bad. No, I'm yeah, that's not what I'm saying. I'm yeah, just yeah. saying like that I was just that was just something I was trying to parse out the entire time I was watching it. I never found out any never found a satisfactory answer to it. Mm. But I mean, it's, some sometimes I do wonder if like directors are just huge like, you know, like Paul Thomas Anderson, they're such a huge fan of a certain actor that they just want to write a role for them. Oh, that it's just like, look, Tangerine's <laughs> got some buzz. Like, what? what is our actor wish list? Yeah, right? I, I, I might be that way if I were... Especially for a, for, for a movie, and not only a movie, but like a director like Sean Baker who... Like, Tangerine, it's all unknown actors. There's like... There's no, like true, Ziggy from season two of The Wire. And this movie, it's all unknown actors. Except for Willem Dafoe. Except for Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Macon Blair in that one scene. Oh, right. Yeah, he shows I, up, I, Megan Blair shows up in that, and he shows up in Logan Lucky, and both times I was like, hey, it's Megan Blair! All right. <laughs> Pretty good. Well, here's a hot tip. Speaking of Megan Blair... Here's a hot tip to all casting directors out there. If you cast Megan Blair in your movie, you get the audience to be happy, because they, they remember Megan Blair, and they like yeah, him so much. I love him. He's great. He's, uh, he made a good movie this year, too. I don't That's know right. this I, world in the I don't living feel, home anymore. Yeah, that almost made my top 25. I think that was like 26 or 27. Yeah, what was it called? I don't lo- feel- I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, right. It's a, With the lovely Melanie Linsky. It's a lyric from, uh, uh, what's his name, Alan? Hank Williams' song. Ah. We got more lists, Jim. We do? Yeah. Ooh. Uh, Jason Petrovsky. He says, can't wait for the year... <laughs> 
I can't wait for the end of the year episode. I assume Phantom Thread will end up being in at, at least in my top five, but I'm not seeing that till January 12th. He's making a special Chicago trip to see it in 70mm. Oh, Jason, say hi! I assume this list will change once I hear your episode and realize how many 2017 films I missed. Mm. Number 10 is Baby Driver. Number 9 is The Shape of Water. Number 8 is I, Olga Hepnarova, which was on my list for last year. Number 7 is Call Me By Your Name. Number 6 is Mother. Number 5 is Lady Bird. Number 8 is A Ghost Story. Number 9 is Dunkirk. Number 7 is Personal Shopper. And number one is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Kind of monkeyed around with the numbers somewhere. What, did I? Did I? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Oh. You started counting from ten again at some point in the middle. Uh, <laughs> Brad Strauss, host of the Directors Club, also sent a list. He's the oh, actual yeah, I've host heard of the Directors him. Club. He's a pretty cool guy. Um, well, here's my list. thought this was a particularly weak year, so some of the lower half usually wouldn't have normally made the list, as they are more like seven out of tens. Very happy, though, to showcase Frederick Wiseman, my favorite documentary director, with one of his strongest works as my number one. So his number 10 was Faces Places. His number 9 was War of the Planet of the Apes. His number 8 was The Post. His number 7 was Star Wars The Last Jedi. His number 6 was Coco. His number 5 was Baby Driver. His number 4 was Get Out. His number 3 was Logan. His number 2 was Dunkirk. And his number 1 was Ex Libris, The New York Public Library. You know what I saw this year? I saw Titticut Follies uh, this year at the Music Box. Oh, shit. That... That movie's amazing. Yeah, I've been meaning to see it. Ever that since. movie is amazing. Mm. I, I that that got me hungry to see more Frederick Wiseman. So I would like to see Ex Libris and at Berkeley and all of his and I stuff. fucking love libraries. So I want to see this movie. Pretty good. You know what? We, there was one in our subcategories we forgot hardest um, hardest moment that you cried this year. I don't feel like we mentioned that at all. I didn't cry this year. At you, you didn't cry at all. Uh, well, let me hold on. Let me take a look. Because honestly, I gotta say, it's not a great movie. It didn't even make my top thirty. But there is a moment in Coco, and fuck you, Pixar, once again. That's uh-huh. all I'm gonna say. Because it made me cry hard. Uh, let's see. Let's call me by your. I mean, Coco is good. I mean, it has the same problems that Patrick has brought up with um, films, animated films, and that uh, it's not very funny. That there's a lot of jokes? Yeah, there's a lot of jokes that fall flat. But the... Uh, just... There's a moment involving playing a song with a grandmother that, you know... If you are not crying, yeah. check your pulse. I, I cried a lot this year at movies that were not from 2017. I did not cry once at a single 2017 movie. What a terrible year! By tears, they did not flow! Um, <laughs> my number four is John Wick Two. Oh, was it? Oh yeah, you're right. It's your turn. That's right. John Wick Two by Chad Stileski. Mm. Uh, John Wick Two is fucking incredible. There's not really anything else that looks like it. It's beautiful. The it it. So I liked the first John Wick, but I, I didn't. I I thought it was took itself too seriously. Yes. And I thought that the world of the Russian mob was really boring and felt like a placeholder for, like, the movie it actually should be. John Wick Chapter 2 is the movie it actually should be. Um, The trick of, like, 
actually, we're going to slowly reveal that this is not the real world, but in fact, some sort of bizarre comic book world of assassination. Like, that trick only works once, and I really love that in the first John Wick. But the but I like the way it continues to slowly expand its scope and its sense of, like, what the rules are of this world. But only, like, very subtly and never just, like, this group in 19... You know, then, then there was the splintering off, and we're the this group, and this group is with this... You know, like, it only tells you what you need to know, and it leaves a lot to your imagination. Um... I think the action scenes are incredible. There's, like, just moments throughout. I was just cackling because of how absurdly violent it is. There's, at one point, John Wick fishtails his Mustang and just slams someone, and they go flying into the side of a wall. And it's, like, one of the the best times I had this year was just watching that guy fly the wall. The other time he shoves a pencil through someone's gums. (laughs) I I went, went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, like, egregious violence. I've yeah. seen, I've seen it all, but like, and a lot of them's in wide shots. It's not all close up and no, shaky no, cam. It's, they're very well shot. Both uh, Chad Stalski and what's his name, who they combined and worked on the first John Wick, and uh, then they worked separately. This they year. worked separately this year because the other guy made Atomic Blonde, which I thought was a bad movie, but I thought the action was well directed. Yeah, they're the guys who know how to do action now. The combat is really good. It does a really good job of simultaneously making John Wick feel invincible and vulnerable, it, which is the, actually the secret trick of all like great action. Like Indiana mm. Jones is constantly getting his ass kicked, but also he does the most amazing things ever. He'll just get blasted in the face and thrown through a window, but then he climbs under the truck. You know, like that's the Indiana Jones thing. That's like yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah. the John McClane thing in The Good Die Hards, and that is absolutely John Wick in this movie. The idea of guns and hand-to-hand combat being combined because because everyone's wearing bulletproof suits, that means that being shot is more like getting hit with a really good punch as opposed to being shot, is a really brilliant conceit. Um, I think I think some of the I think some of the violence is a little disappointing. Digital like digital squid Blood. headshot stuff, like especially towards the end. Um, it gets a it gets a little less interesting, but like the aesthetic of the movie is really astounding. Like it's not the neon thing that you're expecting. It doesn't. It's not just trying to be like cool '80s neon guy. Like it really has its own thing going with the neon and the wet pavement. Yeah, um, I was I was genuinely surprised. And the, score, and then the mirror sequence towards the end. Oh yeah, when they're when they're fighting through the art institute. Yeah, it is. It reminds me like. A little bit of something like uh, like Point Blank, like the Lee Marvin movie. Maybe that's why I like this one yeah, so like, much. <laughs> like it, is, it feels like the revenge story is now abstracted enough that it is just able to be viewed from that's the, the, the way proper distance. Be. But also, very critically, there's more humor in this one. And that humor kind of opens up the tone in a way that the first John Wick just didn't have. Like, I felt this one was funnier. And, and like... It's a like I'm not a Keanu Reeves fan. Like I think Keanu Reeves has been used well in the past, but I generally think he's kind of a shallow, vapid sort of an actor. You and need like, to see him sneeze in the lake house, and then you'll be convinced. I've seen the lake house. Okay. Um, I saw. I probably saw the sneeze, um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're referring to. But it's uh, amazing. But like you know, I like him in like my own private Idaho. I think he suits well for the like his blankness is good for the Matrix. I I think I like him. I, I don't yeah. love him, and but I don't understand the hate either. I, I, I think I, I like him. The other, the other, like I'd say, like a couple weeks ago, I tried to watch The Devil's Advocate at work, and like <laughs> any movie where he isn't like Mister Blank, sort of 
person. That movie's kind like, of I think dumb. He's, I think he's terrible funny. in Point Break. I don't like that him in that movie at all. Um, like, Serviceable. I think that movie could have been amazing if I really believed the relationship between him and Patrick Swayze, but I think Patrick Swayze does all the heavy lifting in that movie. But this movie really utilizes Keanu Reeves well because he it's less is more. The, he gets fu- He's funnier the less he reacts. He just has to have the right timing when he sort of says his understated thing, like when him and Common are having a drink at the bar. Um, he's obviously like an actual – like he is physically capable of combat in a way that few actors are. Um, and so like he – you're able to see his face during long takes as mm. he's doing these fights because it's actually him doing those fights. And like that is important. And then also like – you see the weariness in him because you have such a strong mental image of what he was as this pretty boy as in his teenage years and stuff. And he has now, like, he, you know, he's gone through some personal tragedies and he is just getting older and he looks more rugged and he looks, like, weary. Yeah, in a yeah. very convincing way that the movie John Wick Chapter 2 utilizes so well. Um, I love the ending of this movie and how it is like slowly it's like wait a second what the fuck is this world even like I thought this was all operating like in secret like in the underground of New York but like is what is it like they're like throughout the entire movie there's just little things that twist your understanding of the events of the film yeah. and the world they take place in in a way that I absolutely adore and it's like my kind of world building but I don't the ending is 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 possible is it's what am I trying to say? It's kind of choreographing an even more expansive universe. Right. For like this? I'm not necessarily. I don't necessarily think John Wick Chapter Three will be great. Like I'm always. I hope I'm, always so. I'm always skeptical about sequels, and this. I think that. I don't think Lightning can strike the same place three times. Um, but. Eh, but uh, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely fucking see it, and and I hope that they get Charlize Theron in there because. She's also the other actor in Hollywood who can do like real stunts and stuff and, look, yeah. and like convincingly fight. That fight scene in I was uh, never Atomic a fan Blonde of hers in an early part of her career, and now mm-hmm. I am. For sure. Um, and same with Keanu. I think he's just maybe he's one of those actors that's just aging well. Well, I think he's just picking roles that suit him. Like yeah. I'm not gonna see like, you know, like Pete, you have to remember, like, he also was in Sweet November. Like he also was just like supposed to be fun. I do like him in Bill and Ted. I do, but that's a very broad sort of a thing. That's yeah. not necessarily the same sort of thing. But anyway, he's a, he's great in this movie called "I Love You to Death" with Kevin Kline. I think you would like that. I'll have to check it out. It's funny. It's really funny, and uh, he's he can do like really offbeat, awkward, dark humor too. I don't surprisingly. I well. don't believe it, but I, I will d- say. I, 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 trust me, it's good. <laughs> Him, but, William Hurt, and River Phoenix in that movie together. Yeah, comic gold. I think John like, – and again, I think that part of my love of John Wick Chapter 2, like Dunkirk, it's just the thing that I actually constantly crave. But every time I think I'm going to get it, I don't get it because something pisses me off about the thing. Like every time – like The Raid Redemption was a movie that people were like, oh, this is it. This is finally it. And I saw it and I was just like, this is meaningless. This is mm. just – like – that I didn't like, or like you know, Mad Max Fury Road, which I'm not trying to say is a bad movie or anything, but like it was very clearly not for me. And like I want this movie so bad, and it finally came in the form. And like John Wick, one, there was some of it, and I could see it, but it was sort of obscured by some of the bullshit in there I didn't like. Yeah, 
I love all of the subtitles. I love how everyone is pro is uh, proficient in every language, including like American Sign Language. I do think that uh, that one assassin, the the deaf <laughs> assassin, gets sort of the short shrift. She she doesn't get the full arc that she yeah, should. But like, yeah, that's true. But oh man, the the when they're fi- I, I just sound like a fucking twelve year old. Oh, and the part where they're, they're walking <laughs> down and they're shooting each other, but they're doing it silently. You, you remember when Keanu Reeves did that thing? That was awesome. Yeah, yeah it's like, good. It's no. so good. I can't imagine a more opposite film <laughs> for me to. Uh, Anyway, yeah, John Wick Chapter 2, really great, my number four. My number four is very different, and I'm going to try and go a little quicker. Loveless, Mm -hmm. which is a Russian film from the director of Leviathan that I had no idea, I knew nothing about. Like, sometimes you get screeners with, like, a little, you know, press kit or PDF or something, and you kind of get a synopsis. This just came in a little sleeve, um, and all it had was Loveless and the running time. And I went, yeah, I'll get around to it maybe. And I, I watched it, and I could, I was like, I mean, some, uh, you know, we all have this problem now. Sometimes we're on our phones, sometimes we're on our tablets, sometimes we're on our laptops. And then there are those moments where you're like, there is nothing that's going to distract me because this movie has got a hold of me. And it's about, I mean, it's again a story that maybe you'd, you'd seen before where it's really just two parents that, you know, clearly are, are need to be divorced, and they're getting divorced. And what is this doing to this little boy, uh, this eight-year-old, nine-year-old boy? Uh, and you see that early on. It's kind of like the setup. Uh, and just there's certainly a moment, a moment early on where you just see how it's affecting this little boy, and you get welled up yourself. Um, but th- th- these are two loveless parents. They are the most selfish, horrible parents that I've seen in a movie. And it's really about what happens when the little boy runs away. Um, And it becomes a mystery. And the whole town winds up looking for this little boy. And it becomes a search movie in in some regards. Uh, But apparently, and I know Mike D'Angelo brought this up in his review of it, it is the whole movie, and some people, whether they're from Russia or elsewhere, feel like this movie's really a heavy-handed metaphor for um, just the changes that have taken place in Russia, like clearly going from, you know, the Soviet Union and then, you know, just basically about the death of communism and what it's done to the country and just, like, how everybody's disassociated from one another. But, like, just the disappearance of the boy is, like, the disappearance of the self or... Just like something politically mm-hmm. driven. That's so, the way Leviathan was. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, again, it's a very intimate story about this this family unit, but I guess it's trying to say something. It's it's got a bigger message at large that you know I wasn't even thinking about because I was just more or less um, consumed by what was taking place on screen rather than thinking about it as this deep intellectual exercise. But when you think about it more and more. It really says a lot, and I think it can say a lot about what, what our country is kind of going through in this political climate right now. Um, but apparently, it is very like it takes place at a specific time in, in the country. I think it's 2002, maybe, or something. Uh, but there's like snippets of radio and broadcast and television news outlets throughout that are sort of hinting at certain things going on in the country. 
nothing specific. I don't think it's like a specific event, but like a culmination of different things going on. But it's really bleak. It's really disquieting. It's kind of um, it haunts you. It has a like an incredible final image of I believe it's a kite that uh, this little boy has in the tree. That uh, you know, I just it's really something special. I I can't really like go into greater detail about it. But there are moments that you'll never forget. There's a, a moment that takes place in a morgue that is just powerful in and of itself. And that's not to say that anybody dies necessarily. Please, when this movie comes out, uh, check it out. It's I haven't seen Leviathan or any of his other films, but Loveless is a damn near masterpiece. Mindy Whitaker, a longtime listener. Number 10, Dunkirk. Number 9, Good Time. Number eight, A Ghost Story. Number seven, Phantom Thread. Number six, Staying Vertical. Number five, Ex Libris, The New York Public Library. Number four, Faces Places. Number three, three, Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Number two, Get Out. Number one, Lucky. We also have a list here from Adam Kempinar from Film Spotting. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Yeah, very good. Pretty good. Number 10, Personal Shopper. Number 9, Wonderstruck. Number 8, The Big Sick. Number 7, Dunkirk. Number 6, Get Out. Number 5, Faces Places. Number three, number 4, Billboard, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Number 3, Columbus. Number 2, The Florida Project. And number 1, Lady Bird. Lady Bird. I'm going to talk pretty briefly about my number 3 pick because my number 3 pick is a movie that has not been released really anywhere yet. It, I saw it at the Cinepocalypse Film Festival. <gasps> it is uh, The Crescent, uh, directed by Seth A. Smith, I believe an Irish filmmaker, written by Darcy Spital. Um, huh. It is a movie that I don't think many people like uh, from what I've read of the reactions, and it is the scariest movie I have seen since I first saw Pulse. So it's probably about ten years. Um, Whoa! It is, yeah. So, The Crescent is a very typical sort of ghost story about a woman and her child who, uh, their, her, fa- her husband has died, and they go to stay with her at her mother's beach house, um, where they encounter all sorts of strange occurrences, and is it his ghost, or is it some other force at work? It is super boilerplate in... And and also uh, occasionally poorly acted in a way that you normally associate with low budget movies of the like seventies the horror like horror films from the seventies it is it's the way that you associate with maybe like non professional actors um, I don't know how intentional this is or isn't but it is that that is the way it is um, the thing the thing about the Crescent is that. Uh, the lead actress is Danica Vandersteen. Um, in almost every scene, she is accompanied by Woodrow Graves, who is a child who is maybe two or three years old. Um, and every scene kind of just features his incessant babbling, the way he hmm. babbles, the way like a three-year-old babbles. And she is just sort of a mother who's going through a lot, so she's sort of distant, but she's looking after him. And he is just sort of... Babbling throughout every scene, and there, there is an incredible sense of ver- verisimilitude. It doesn't seem like a child actor. It seems like they just had a child who didn't quite know a camera was on him, 
and they basically used editing and you know taking his sound and recording his sound and stuff and like found a way to make it work in a, in, a, in any given scene or like to film scenes in ways that he isn't looking at the camera but it basically just feels like a real life child existing in this horror movie um this this very like cheesy corny cliche horror movie um there is some other stuff going on that implies like a darker origins about the crescent which is sort of the beach where she's staying is this hmm. sort of crescent beach but um there's some really really cool imagery involving i forget what the what it's called but it's like surface painting where you have a blank um liquid that is more dense than paint and then you paint on top of the liquid and then you can use like a toothpick to send ripples out and then you can it's I don't know what it's called but it's huh. but it's very striking looking and it's one of the key visual motifs throughout the film because this is what the mother does she makes these um <coughs> sort of paintings um and it's you know and that that image is sort of rippled throughout it is very off kilter in a way that is very unusual but the thing that makes it so scary is this fact that this child does not feel like a child actor. This child feels like just a child. And there are scenes where, like, the child is maybe being goaded by a ghost to, like, walk out of his room in, in, in the middle of the night and, like, get on a, on his little totter bike or whatever and, like, go to the edge of the stairs. And, like, it is hmm. so – and the, the, the child is in danger and there is a twist uh, at some point in the middle – um, that is so unbelievably dark and harrowing that I, I just I, – my jaw dropped open and the movie became this other thing about this child in danger. And it is so strange and so – and so visceral and like your sort of response is like an adult wanting to be protective of this kid who has no idea what's happening. Sure. And not only – not acting like he has no idea what's happening. It really genuinely seems like... Like, I'm sure this child's mother was off hand and everything. But it is such a convincing, like, hmm. sense of emotional trauma and physical danger in the context of this ghost story that gets crazier and crazier. And it's sort of disjointed and doesn't make sense in the way that something like Messiah of Evil... I've heard it referenced to my Messiah of Evil in a lot of, a lot of different little oh. ways. Like, it feels like that kind of 70s art house horror film. Wow. And it is so scary. And I, I'm afraid, I like, I'm sorry I can't tell you what happens, but I do think the sort of reveal um, about halfway through the film is so unbelievable. The, the problem with the movie is at the end, it would have been my number one for the year because it was such an insane experience. But the last, I'd say, ten minutes then just spell out, like, by the way, this was all a metaphor for this. Everything you thought was this was actually this because here's this is a metaphor. And it like in a really bad, shitty, just like everything that makes this movie work is the mystery. Mm -hmm. And for and it's a pretty long movie. And for most of the movie, that mystery is just stunning and baffling. Well shit, I And then the last it. ten minutes fucking suck. But despite oh! that, like that's how good I like this that's how much I like this movie is even though the last 10 minutes suck and undo a lot of what makes it great, it is such an it was such an insane experience for me. And I will say, uh, of anyone else, I've everyone else on Letterboxd that I've seen who has seen this movie, they're like, eh, three stars, three and a half stars. Like, it's fine. It's hmm. it's bad. Or or two stars, one and a half star. I think, like, I think Brian Tallarico gave it one star. <gasps> like, you don't have to make all these <laughs> fucking 
fucking what you want to, uh, FM morning zoo like soundboard? I guess I'm like I'm I'm I'm, I'm genuinely shocked. Uh, I'm just saying I'm just saying like I I already told you that Brian Tellerico gave it one star earlier oh. in the episode. I forgot. <laughs> Um, but like not many people have had my reaction to it so I think there's a high possibility that you see this and you go I don't know what the fuck Patrick's on that movie kind of sucks or that movie was fine but it definitely isn't good like top 10 good or whatever that's fine for me the Crescent was an insane amazing experience and it's the sort of thing I went to that Cinepocalypse Film Festival I saw like maybe nine movies and most of them were like, oh, it's kind of predictable. It's kind of disappointing, whatever. Oh, yeah. And then that one, that was like, that's why I'm going to this. Because yeah. I want this experience. And it exploded my brain. And I'm dead now. So, the Crescent, pretty good. Patrick, you're dead? Yes. Oh, wow. What was your number three? Um, I'm going to go pee. All right. Number three is... Um, a very special film, you know, Patrick. I, 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 could, I could give two shits about architecture. You know, I, I just never been like that fascinated by it. I once took a drafting class and I said, "Fuck this," and I just, I, I don't know. I just never cared about the way buildings looked until I saw a film that has come out this past year, and uh, it's it. A, it's called Columbus. Mm. Mm. And you know what? I'm also tired of people being like, you know what? Fuck Indiana. There's nothing there. People suck. Well, they're not. They're not. They're. they're I wouldn't say all people suck there. There's a lot of good things to look forward to when you go through Indiana, like Indianapolis, and apparently this little town called Columbus, Indiana, that I had no idea about. Because holy crap! For wanna... most of the movie, I assumed it was taking place in Ohio. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I would I would have thought so too. However, it's actually Indiana, right? And wow, is there some amazing buildings around there? I mean, the it's it, you know it's it's very Frank Lloyd Wright in some of these uh, uh, structures and things like that. And I uh, I was really taken with the cinematography and that it's very still at times, but also he knows exactly when to move the camera. He knows exactly when to glide gracefully. And I think the interactions here are wonderful. What's with the smile? You, I, we're not <laughs> drinking. I don't know what's happening to you. It's not late and we're not drinking. I think after four hours, something just happens. My brain, I don't know what. <laughs> you made this little face. Glide gracefully. <laughs> like, oh, okay, cool. Let's yeah. get in it. I like to glide. Um, no, but the newcomer, uh, Kogananda. Kogananda? Kogananda. Kogananda. That's how I say it. Yeah. He has a great eye, uh, and he casted you know a really great uh, ensemble here. I mean, mostly it's it's focused on uh, John Chow and Haley Lou Richardson, who is quite wonderful, uh, and as, as well as Parker Posey, which was nice to see. I hadn't seen her in a while. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think I don't know. Like some people did compare this to another sort of Before Sunset, where. You know, it's or, you know before sunrise, whichever one, and uh, you know people people just oh, just two people randomly meet, make a connection, lost in translation style, and then they part ways, and that's it. You know, I I don't know. There, there's something deep and meaningful about this movie to me, and maybe again, like I just like I mentioned earlier, I just knew these characters. I felt like inside and out. I know I know this world. I know these characters, and I feel really comfortable spending time with them. 
it's a really nice, calm movie. Not a lot of you know uh, drama per se. I mean, there is there is some involving the mother here, and you know, I, I didn't think any of it was heavy heavy handed. I don't know where that voice came from either. But anyway, I just there's no condescension here. It's really just like like this really authentic feel about two people, you know, two random people meeting first initially sharing a cigarette and then conversation and deciding I, I there's we have a we have some sort of you know rapport. Let's just continue it. Let's let's hang out and see where it goes and you know eventually they're going to yes they may or may not part ways and not keep in touch, but I think it's the moments they share that make this movie very special and very familiar to me. I loved it. I loved everything about Columbus. It's a very nice movie. It For, is a very nice movie. I like nice. Sometimes, yeah. you know? Yeah. Not everything has to be John Wick Chapter 2. There's not a lot of nice on my top ten. I'll give you that right now. No. Personal Chopper oh. is the closest I get to a nice movie. Mm. And that has a brutal murder in it. Oh, boy. Do we have to... We got lists? Yeah, we got lists. Cool. We got lists. Missed. Uh, from Jeff Breitman who co-hosts this podcast called Fresh Perspective that I quite like. It's a part of the Now Playing Network. Please visit nowplayingnetwork.net. This is his list. It's an idiosyncratic list, and he didn't get a chance to see as many films as he wanted to. Finances were very tight. So for number 10 is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing Mo. It might uh, stand for Missouri. Missouri. Yes. It may. May. Maybe it's a different film. Okay. Number nine is Ladybird. Number eight is The Big Sick. Number seven is I, Tanya. Number six is I Am Not Your Negro. Number five is Dunkirk. Number four is Caddy. Number three is Get Out. I'm surprised, surprised Caddy wasn't in your... If you like nice, that's just uh, that Turkish documentary about cats. Oh, God. You saw that, right? Yeah, I did. I saw it three times. <laughs> <laughs> number three, number three, get out. Number three is Briggs Bieber. Number one is Twin Peaks. Ooh, eighteen episodes. David Lynch. We also have Jonathan from Film Yak's podcast from the Film Yak podcast top ten of twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. His number ten was Killing of a Sacred Deer. His number nine was My Friend Dahmer. His number eight was David Lynch The Art Life. His number seven was The Shape of Water. His number six was Dunkirk. His number five was Personal Shopper. His number four was A Ghost Story. His number three was The Meyerowitz Story is New and Selected. His number two was Good Time and his number one was Super Dark Times. He likes times. Sure does, Jim. Sure does. Mmm. I think you should see Super Dark Times. I'd like to get your take on it. Take on it. Um, but I imagine you're done with 2017. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see. What's uh, what's on your list next? Uh, we're at number two, Jim. Oh, shit. My number two is staying vertical. Is it? Okay. Yeah, okay. directed okay. by Elaine Guriardi. <laughs> However you pronounce his name. What are you doing? I don't know, I'm just applauding your choice. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, man. Staying vertical is about immaturity. Um, and it is mm. one of many films, like, you, you look at Noah Baumbach's, like, filmography, a lot of that is about, like, men not wanting to grow up or not wanting to face their age. and being Or Wes immature. Anderson, too. Or yeah. Wes Anderson, or any number of Adam Sandler films, or anything like that. Like, there's tons and tons of movies, it's a kind of, like, a cliche, or, you know, certainly Judd Apatow. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, like, it's, it's a big cliche of comedy. 
um, is the is the man child doesn't want to grow up and staying vertical is completely flips all that on its head by being so crazy, so absurd, so audacious. Uh, not just audacious in terms of structure, but in terms of just like sexual ex- explicitness. This has the best jump cut I've ever seen in a movie. Um, it is a jump cut between two lovers lying in bed, full frontal nudity. It's a low camera angle, so we get right up in there. <laughs> we really, we yeah. we really see the penis and the vagina, and there. And she's talking about, you know, I really do like you, and you know, I just I thought maybe you could stay or whatever. And then it's a jump cut to that va- a closer shot of that vagina giving birth. <laughs> which yeah. is which is like an insane way to uh shorten like a 9 month pe- or a 10 month period of time or whatever. What it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen in a movie. I was like kind of enjoying the movie before then and that happened. I just like stood up and applauded. Um the movie is full of really weird uh touches like that and like um, just amazingly evocative images of the feeling of like wanting to dodge responsibility and not wanting to deal with the world. And I think the, the lead actor, uh, Damien Bernard is so good. He is such a slimy little fuckhead. <laughs> like, oh. he is, like he is, I mean, he is, he's like, a piece yeah, of, yeah, he's, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not saying I don't relate to him. I'm just saying like, he's a real piece of shit. And like, he just, he just tries to weasel out of everything he possibly can. Um, because he just doesn't want to do, like everything he goes into is a way of avoiding the last thing and then the thing he just went into becomes a problem so then he has to go into something like he is such like uh, it is such a perfect encapsulation of that feeling um yeah i did i did not take it i think i i took it as a lot more critical than you did mm. staying vertical cuz i think i think your interpretation was more just like he's just a rambling man he just yeah just, just wanders around yeah i think this movie is very explicitly like actually he's a little child and he's immature and he doesn't know what he like he's yeah he 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 doesn't he has and he tro- doesn't take responsibility for things he should take and he's and he's very avoidant extreme and, difficulty right. growing up i mean yeah i I mean, I th- I don't know. Sometimes I understand that, and sometimes I I feel like yeah. Like I said, I'm not saying I don't relate to it. There's there was a shot. Uh, there's a shot in this movie. This guy, he it, again, it's a kind of a dream logic, and he has this very basically. It's this movie's version of like a therapist, where he goes into a swamp and he gets vines connected to his body that are reading some sort of re- like there's some sort of technological aspect to these vines that are connected to him as he's talking to this like therapist. And he's a screenwriter, and his producer comes and finds him in the middle. Like, he sees this man in a rowboat and a, with a fucking a suitcase. And he's like, oh, my God, it's my producer. <laughs> and he goes and he runs. And, then, and there's this shot in this movie of, in the distance, you see this rowboat with this uh, therapist and, and his boss, like, calling out for him, trying to find him. And he just, like... And he's in the foreground. Uh, you see the back of his head just slowly sink into this mud as he doesn't want to talk to them. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> this movie is really funny and really out there. And, like, I really like Stranger by the Lake. I thought Stranger by the Lake was a really good Hitchcockian kind of a thriller. But this movie shows so much imagination and daring um, and in a way that you would not get from a relatively straightforward, realistic film like uh, *Stranger by the Lake*. It's too bad that a lot of people have found it off-putting. Like it didn't, I, it didn't really get any kind of push for foreign language film of, in any way. I think what yeah, *Stranger by the Lake* or *Stranger no, by the Lake*. This one. 
Well, I I, mean, I don't know how it's many a people saw taste. this. Yeah. I mean, this the plot of this movie is like if I was going to try to sell you on this movie, I would say this is like what if Eraserhead were funny. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um it's yeah. also harrowing. Like there's also some no, there's insane stuff, some stuff with stuff. wolves and Yeah, it's towards the and, end too. Yeah. And like a baby and and like these homeless men. Like it's it it goes all over the place and it has it has a really dark, dry sense of humor and that clearly from my top 10 list, like dark and dry is my sense of humor. Um, I absolutely love staying vertical. I saw, I sort of watched it on a whim because I was like, "Yeah, I like Stranger by the Lake. I'll give this a look." I hadn't heard anything about it, and yeah, that that jump cut to the woman giving birth, and it it, it is like camera full on pointed to a baby crowning, like right, right, like that sold me on this movie so well. And if that kind sounds like the kind of thing that might sell you on a movie, you should definitely check this out. And if that sounds like the sort of thing that would make you hate a movie, then this probably isn't for you. Number two for me, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to talk about it too much because um, it is beguiling and it's really ineffable. It's hard. It's hard for me to 100 um, percent encapsulate. And even just rewatching it uh, on New Year's Eve, I kind of went. I don't know how to talk about this movie, and I don't. Sorry, hit the mic again. And uh, you can hit it all you want, baby. I don't know what. It you know especially I mean, like we talked about, there's there's a moment involving a ghost that uh, shows up in a, in a room at one point and may or may not travel out into the hotel lobby. This movie's called Personal Shopper. Oh, I thought you were talking about it again. Go ahead. No, I don't like it that much. But Personal Shopper it's really guiling. <laughs> Let's talk about the beguiled. Anyway, this is uh this is my favorite Kristen Stewart performance. Mm-hmm. Uh and I mean like you had a really strong response to Clouds of Sills Maria, and I felt like I did too with this one. And it's hard to act, I- I exactly say why. I just think like you mentioned the use of technology. I think it's the best use of texting I've seen in a movie and the ellipsis like the ellipsis is kind of creating suspense in this when you see the little dots on the texting screen for the iPhone. Mm-hmm. I never thought like I'd be, you know, anxious to see what comes next. Yeah. I mean, we all ha- I mean, people who have iPhones can know what that experience is like, especially when you're having a conversation with somebody you're you're seeing them, okay, they're writing something and you're waiting and waiting for the next message. But in this movie it really it really invades you in that moment. And vitally he chooses to represent it always on the screen she's holding because I, yeah. think, I think it's become sort of modern parlance to depict texting as text bubble appears on screen. Yeah, I know, and you right? Just get sort of a wide shot of the character looking down at the phone. Right. I like. I love the fact that he just shoots the screen. Yeah. And you know, she she sort of again. I don't know. I don't know if it necessarily says a whole lot about you know a personal identity, but certainly grief. And certainly loss is kind of, you know, uh, haunting her throughout the movie. But also it, it sort of plays this – it plays it for real. It plays this, you know, the, the idea of, and, you know, similar, similarly to Ghost Story is just there is an afterlife and there is a way to communicate. And, you know, towards the end it becomes – I think people are put off by the fact that it kind of becomes very literal at the very end. But I, I found that to be a really smart way to end this movie. I just thought it was really – touching and not necessarily like 
an easy out, but it's re- really just kind of like uh, she still feels a connection to her brother no matter what. And that's a, a happy, uplifting ending in some ways, but also just like she still feels alone. And I think that's kind of what the, the film ends, ends it on. Like in this physical world right now, I am alone but I still have a connection to the spirit that touched my life. And maybe that's not necessarily what he's going for, but I felt that, and that's what I appreciated the most. Think, it's a great I, film. I think since David Bowie died, uh, Kristen Stewart is our, our best bisexual. I think that might be true. I think she's the best bisexual we have going right now. Yeah, I can't wait to see what this director does next. I think it's with Juliette Binoche next. Oh, cool. So keep doing what you do, man. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it going. He's, keep he's it going. He has discovered... What's happening? Speaking we of have keeping a lot it going, more lists to read through. We should just get through them all right now. Oh yeah, we got four left, and then one uh, audio thing, right? Yes. Matt Gamble, president of the Brian De Palma fan club, as well as uh, uh, author of for, over at Where the Long Tail Ends. His number ten is Landline. Hmm. Number nine is It Comes at Night. Number eight is Ingrid Goes West. Number seven is Get Out. Number six is John Wick 2, The Wickening. Number five is I, Tonya. Number four is Baby Driver. Number three, ooh, a movie I also really liked that, uh, Wind River. I did not see this one. Uh, yeah, I should have put that on those two. Number two is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And number one is Shape of Water. We also have Valerie Richardson's longtime listener and fan. We have her list. Her number 10 was Florida Project. Her number 9 was Dunkirk. Her number 8 was Blade Runner 2049. Her number 7 was Mother. Her number 6 was The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Her number 5 was Jane. Her number 4 was A Good Story. (laughs) Let's go ahead and take that again. Her number 4 was A Ghost Story. Has a, uh, let's say, mediocre story. but Oh! Oh, take that, Valerie! No. Uh, Her number four is a ghost story. Her number three was A Quiet Passion. Her number two was The Post. And her number one was Lady Bird. I like The Post as well. It was very good. It's a very good Spielberg movie, indeed. I'm excited. Yeah, I think you'll like it. I'm a fan of this Spielberg fellow. He's all right. Uh, Number ten. Actually, actually... (laughs) Actually, he has uh, Ready Player One coming out this year, so never mind. Mm. <laughs> I've been told to read that book for my Five. New Year's resolution. A few people. Oof. Okay. Go no, ahead. Uh, <laughs> why did you read it? I've, I've, I've read sections of it, oh, okay. and I've read more of it. Mm. And Mm-mm. we should probably read the next list. The next list is uh, 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 by the president of the Chicago Film Critics Association. A great guy. Wrote me a very nice note. Uh, Dan Geyer, a longtime writer, former film critic for the Daily Herald. Number 10, Phantom Thread. Number 9, The Post. Number 8, Dunkirk. Number 7 is Moodbound. Number 6 is Blade Runner 2049. Number 5 is Call Me By Your Name. Number 4 is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Number 3 is The Big Sick. Number 2 is Ladybird. Number 1 is Get Out. And we have a list here from Tessa Rack from PandaBearShape.com. Sounds familiar. They were on uh, several episodes of Tracks of the Damned. <gasps> um, that's a podcast I have. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, they Their top ten is, not numbered, uh, November, gorgeous, eccentric, black and white film from Estonia about fairy tales goings on in rural 19th century village. That movie sounded dope. Yeah, uh, I gotta see this. My entire high school sinking into the sea. 
And Summer 1993, which was a film by director Carla Simon based on uh, her personal experience. A few months in the life of a six-year-old girl who moves to Barcelona for, to her uncle's house in the Spanish countryside after her mother dies. Uh, and some more stuff about that. Uh, those were the top three. And then their other seven in their top ten is Get Out, I Am Not Your Negro, Personal Shopper, Lady Bird, Casting John Binet, The Little Hours, and Dave Made a Maze. What did he do? He made... Amaze! Amazing! Amazing! Wow! <laughs> wow! Oh my God, I just threw it. I'm sorry. Man. That's okay. You write one to help. That's all right. <laughs> uh oh! The moment has come. The moment has come for the audio. By Andrew James, <laughs> um, formerly of Cinecast and Row3.com, they put their show to bed. Oh. Bye-bye. Here's Andrew James with his top 10 films of 2017. Hey, you guys. Andrew here, formerly of the Row 3 Cinecast. Uh, great to have you guys back doing the Director's Club. I'm glad you could get together. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. And I'm just dropping by to throw you out a nugget of my uh, top 10 films from 2017. It was a kind of a crazy year. I didn't get out to see everything like I usually do, so I missed a few that could probably pop onto this list in the coming weeks, but for now, um, as it stands, is as follows. Uh, number 10 is Doug Lyman's American Maid. Uh, number 9, The Great Wall uh, from Zhang Yimou. I know a lot of people hated it. I thought it was really original, and it was just awesome costuming, and every, every action sequence had something new to it and something I hadn't seen, and uh, I just... I don't know where all the haters came from, but at any rate, um, The Great Wall was great. Uh, number eight would be Olivia Isaias's Personal Shopper. Not at all was I was expecting going in, and wow, I was blown away. Almost as good as the Clouds of Sils Maria from a couple years ago. Um, number seven is The Sense of an Ending. Number six is Wind River. Number five, probably an overlooked film for a lot of people, is Good Time um, with Robert Pattinson. Awesome. I think Jim is on board with this one. Uh, really great. Just one-night mayhem uh, type of film. Uh, number four, a documentary called LA-92. It's about the riots that ensued after uh, the Rodney King trial in LA in 92. Uh, number three, Kong Skull Island. I know it probably seems a little high, but... It was, I guess my expectations going in were pretty low. And then all of the filmmaking in that movie is top notch. It's it's colorful. It's got great camera movement. It's got a bunch of unexpected moments. Again, I'm not sure where all the hate came from, but it's a really well-made movie and just a lot of fun. And a whole hell of a lot of helicopter porn. Number two, Star Wars The Last Jedi. I think there's been enough conversation about this movie, but I loved it. And my number one movie of the year is Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Again, kind of went in with a little lower expectations. Just felt sort of like cheap Coen brothers. Um, but wow, it was so unexpected. Performances across the board are amazing. It was just a great story with great messages. Um, amazing performances. And uh, yeah, it was just w wonderful. So I really uh, was glad that I was able to get out to see that. Um, if I had to give a few honorable mentions, uh, Colossal was great. War of the Planet of the Apes, 
basically just a road movie. I really appreciated that. And The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I think could move up after uh, – oh, one last kind of weird honorable mention. We went and saw Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle a couple weeks ago. It's really fun. It's basically an adventure version of The Breakfast Club. I, I think people – if you like Jack Black and or The Rock, um, I think you'll enjoy this. It's it's pretty funny, and it's a lot of fun. So check that out. Um, and that's it. I saw – it was a great year on Netflix. It was a great fl- year um, with television shows. Um, so I look forward to following up with some of those and seeing what is in store for us in 2018. Thanks again, you guys, for keeping the show going, and uh, we'll see you on down the road. Cheers. Wow, what a great list. I sure enjoyed actually listening to that for real just now. Yeah, I know, right? I can't believe Star Wars The Last Jedi number two. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. Okay, I didn't hear the audio. Okay, Okay, um, what is next? Patrick, what is your number one film of 2017, please? So. I don't know what it is. I honestly have no clue what it could be. Yeah, you do. No, I don't. What is it? I forgot. Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh, duh! <laughs> I was, like, trying to think, what hasn't made his list yet? And you're right. I, I know what yours is. I think everybody and their mothers knows. Sure. But, okay, so Killing of a Sacred Deer is my number one uh, by Yorgos Lanthimos. Um... So, 2017 was the worst year of my life. Um, oh, God. Uh, uh, and, again, like, 2018 is going to be worse than that, so that's fine. But um, 2017 was the worst year of my life. Um, both my parents and my sister and her husband, uh, they all voted for Trump, after which I stopped speaking to them. Um, after several months, there were a s- sort of a negotiations. I haven't forgiven them, but I am speaking with them. Our relationship's not what it was. It never will be what it was. Um, Killing of a Sacred Deer is about the patriarch of a family absolutely refusing to take any responsibility for anything hmm. and to do any emotional labor in his family whatsoever. Um, in some ways, it is very similar to Staying Vertical. It's about someone trying to avoid all sense of obligation and responsibility. Um, and also, like Staying Vertical, it illustrates this through a surreal... And completely dark uh, comedy. And it is this... And so one of my problems with seeing 2017... I think I mentioned this earlier when we were recording, but maybe it was off off my... I forget. It has been a long time. Uh, one of my things about 2017 that put me off most films is that I feel like none of the films of 2017 were addressing 2017. It felt like... Most films that came out could have come out in 2016 or 2015 or 2014. I never felt like what was happening on screen was speaking to what I was actually going through my day-to-day life. And when I say going through my day-to-day life, I mean the worst year of my life, constant psychological stress, um, just just really anguish, just living. I don't – yeah, so it was a bad year. And – Killing of a Sacred Deer is the only movie, and I don't think it's about Trump or about 2017 America, and I don't think it's hmm. trying to say this, and I don't think it's like a neat metaphor for any of this. Like, I'm not trying to say, oh, it's secretly about this. Here's the hidden thing. You connect the dots. But Killing of a Sacred Deer is the only time I looked on screen and f- saw what I was going through, which is when his family is sick and they are crawling around him uh, just on their arms and they're desperately asking him, Please, 
please take responsibility for this. And he is refusing to. And they are just sort of crippled around him. And, Mm. like, that image was so unbelievably powerful to me. Because that is what I feel like right now. My parents are very upset about the past year. They do not like Donald Trump. They are Catholics. And (coughs) they are always going to vote Republican because... Especially when there's an empty empty Supreme Court seat because they are pro-life. And that is the only thing that matters to them. They yeah. do not like what has been happening elsewhere. Um, whether or not they're racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever, like, or Islamophobic, like, that all is irrelevant questions. Like, I'm sure they are to some extent, but they are not bigot. They're not bigots in that way that you might expect Trump supporters to be. They just are pro-life. So that's why they voted that way. They will not take responsibility for what they've done. They will not apologize to me. They gave me tons of guilt and made me feel terrible about not speaking to them. And they have not once said, actually, everything you said would happen has happened. This is as bad as you said it would be. We made a mistake. We're sorry. I have not heard that. I will... Never hear that. That's unfortunate because you should own it. You should own it. You should own up to it. And right. So like that, but that's all. It's hard to do. I understand. It's hard oh yeah. To no, do. I'm not saying yeah. We're Irish. It's a lot easier to just bury your feelings and not talk about it. Okay. Like that's going to happen. Um. But uh. So I felt so like it was such a absurd, uh, impressive visual metaphor for how I felt in 2017. That the, the the especially the later scenes when they're crawling around and they're just be- desperately begging someone to acknowledge what they're going through, and people are and he is just ignoring it. And Barry oh. Kagan isn't helping them either. Like that shit was unbelievable to me, and I didn't even really comprehend it as such at the time. I was just shaking, and but also like this movie's fucking funny, and maybe this is just a sense of like what a weird sense of humor uh, I have. Yeah. I thought this movie was hysterical. I saw them crawling around, and I had a visceral, ugly laugh bubble up inside of me Mm. the way you see something that's true and rotten and awful, but, like, hasn't been said, and then someone goes ahead and says it. Like, I was cackling throughout this entire movie, Hmm. and it was cathartic in a way no movie had been that year, and it, it felt relevant in a way no movie has. And again, I don't think this was his intention. I don't think... That if you like, connect, I think there's a lot of weird loose ends with Killing of a Sacred Deer that don't actually add up to anything, other than the fact that in order to capture that very bizarre tone that he wants to capture, Lanthimos employs a lot of sort of chaotic methods uh, in terms of the acting, in terms of stranding you emotionally, in terms of like just weird, odd things happening. Um, this, on top of the feeling of catharsis I had watching this movie and going through what I was going through or whatever, um, it is a hysterically funny and amazing looking movie. It is, I think the thing people don't mention enough is that it is the way that The Lobster feels like a sort of super fucked up parody of romantic comedies. This feels like a hilarious, super fucked up parody of, uh, like psychological thrillers like the fatal attractions and the hand that rocks the cradles of the world Hmm. like it goes through those beats but it goes through them in the most perfunctory blunt ridiculous ways where it's like instead of 
oh, here's the thing that's that subtly reveals that our little girl's becoming a woman and we're out of control. It's just like our daughter's become menstruate has started menstruating. Like yeah. and they're just like bluntly, I've started menstruating. Like the there's all these little things that would be part of every script of that kind of genre that in this film are just stated bluntly, so hysterically. But the result is it, it actually works as a psychological thriller because it is so horrifying and because it's so dark and it is so actually shocking in a way those movies never are because they're so predictable. Mm-hmm. Like, it is both the scariest and the funniest. It's not just a parody of psychological thrillers. It's also the scariest psychological thriller I've seen in years. Um, yeah, definitely, go definitely got I, to me. I mean, I haven't seen this. And I saw this once in theaters, and I saw it about three, four months ago. I saw it at a multiplex, by the way, which is another little funny thing. It's just like, I was, you know, there's scenes in this movie that are so absurdly dark. The ending is so absurdly dark. And, like, just realizing that it's like, yo, fucking, <laughs> like, fucking Captain uh, Thor or whatever is playing next door. Or whatever fucking Spider-Man, whatever was... You know, whatever bullshit was playing next door, like... That should give you hope, though. Uh, I mean, again, like, <laughs> like, I think that's more that theaters don't know what to do. That's true. And that's why, like, stu- that's why studios like A24 can get these wide distributions, because mm-hmm. they're just sort of, like, filling a gap that Hollywood is leaving, because Hollywood is fucking tanking. Like, I don't necessarily have a lot of hope about anything in life, but this movie felt like someone turning to me and said... You know, it was. It's the sort of thing when you're sitting through a terrible, like, uh, you're sitting a terrible, like, assembly at school, and then the kid, uh, like, so, and like, you're the only one. Feel like you're the only one who isn't into it, and you turn to someone, and they say something really funny and cutting about what's happening, and you're like, oh fuck, I'm not alone. Awesome. This is like the craziest, darkest version of that. Yeah, I'll say. Um, I think it's. I think. Yeah, I I can't go beat by beat. And explain every little thing, but I really do love yeah. every little thing about this movie. It is my favorite film of the year. And I think it is. I think it is also. Uh, we didn't get his list because I don't think it's complete yet. But Jay Cheel, it's the only movie this year that he gave a six out of five. So I'm guessing it is his number one as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't wait to watch it again. Honestly, like when it, I, I understand like that that feeling of wanting to laugh and also horrified at the same mm-hmm. time. And I, I think for the most part, I was I was horrified, but I also like can acknowledge like the the way they deliver their lines is very funny. Like there's a moment where it's like, "You have more chest hair than I do. Can you show me your chest hair?" Please? Right. Again, <laughs> it's, like, it's this weird sort of yeah. This like this like oh this this is the scene where we explain that he is an adolescent and burgeoning adolescent that matches with her burgeoning adolescence and then yeah. maybe there's going to be some sort of thing going on later and it builds tension in that way because actually all these movies are all these psychological thrillers are about white men trying to protect their home and the status quo to mm. the point where it's like oh, my daughter can't be sexual like yeah yeah no that's that's a good no, point that, that movie's so fucking funny that I could not stop laughing throughout. Like, I think I was the only person in theater who was on this wavelength, too. Mm. Like, I, everyone else was looking like, I love that feeling. It was a feeling. mother situation where everyone else was looking at me like I'm a fucking madman. But I was just, like, exercising some serious shit throughout that whole film. Um, yeah, one of the hosts on, on Shockwaves, I want to say, I don't know, and I think it was Elric, who just found it hilarious through most of the movie. Yeah. And then somebody else had the complete opposite reaction because they're a parent, too. They just, like, found it horrifying. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little bit of both. Like I'm, I'm, I'm more in the camp of it being horrifying and an effective thriller, 
but there were certainly moments... I think moments... they feed each other. I think, I, think, yeah, yeah. I think the genius of Yorgos Lanthimos is that he balances everything so that the darkness makes it funnier and the comedy makes it darker. And, right. Um, and whatever fucking direction he gives to actors as far as how they deliver dialogue, I don't know what he does, but like... And it's such it's very a mammoth to me. Works. It's like they're it's they're very mammoth col- though. Mammoth they're is cold all about- and like clinical and kind of detached. I don't. I. I the, there is a there is a sense of detachment with mam- with mammoth, but it's it goes so beyond that. Yeah. Um. But I, yeah. No, I do see what you mean as far as the detachment goes. But um, the uh, what was I going to say? Oh, the only movie of his that I don't like, and I I didn't see the movie he made after Dogtooth, but I hate Dogtooth. Really, and I you hate think, it. I think. It has something to do with uh, a language barrier thing, hmm. where I did not. Fi- I found Dogtooth incredibly dry. I did not find it satirical. I didn't find it funny. I didn't find it. I didn't find it surprising. It just felt like a series of awful things happening without any purpose or reason. And I do wonder, like, how much of that has to do with just this very specific tone that is achieved through watching something in my own language as opposed to watching something in Greek. Yeah. Because I yeah, I really hated Dogtooth. Um but the I The first half of the lobster is pretty great too. I I, mean, I, just, I I I really like all of the lobster. I just think the first half is much stronger. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, and this is this follows the exact same uh, the, the exact same style as the lobster except it does have more of the sort of uh, yeah, the Cooper uh, one-point perspective tracking shots. I loved all those wide shots through the hospital where you're seeing into all oh, the other yeah. rooms. God, this movie looks amazing. It too. sure does. That God's eye view of her collapsing. and Yeah, I can't wait to watch this on Blu-ray. Yeah. Oh, my God, Patrick. Guess what? I, uh, I, think, you're, I think I know what your number one is. Gee, I wonder. Could it be by my favorite director? Yes, it can be by your favorite director. Oh, it can? Director. Thank you. Thank yes, you very much. I appreciate it. Because uh, your favorite director are the people who did Little Miss Sunshine. Your number one is Battle of the Sexes. Your favorite director is Danny Boyle. It's T2 Train Spotting. No. Um, it's actually James Gray. Lost City of Z! All right! No. From A to Z. No, 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 no. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It, um, you know, Personal Shopper has some ghosts. You know what else has... You know, a little bit of a ghost in the title. <laughs> it's Phantom Thread. It's not a segue <laughs> if you have to invent the thing you're segueing from. I know. You can't be like... You can't, you can't, if we were talking about ghosts and you said speaking of ghosts, but you can't just say a thing that has ghosts and that also this thing is only vaguely connected. Why didn't you do something more... You do it. You t- well, how would you do it? I mean, I it's know you didn't see the movie, but... That's it. The Phantom Thread is so spooky. It's not really spooky. It's not spooky? No, but the thing is... Please, Marlon Brando, tell me about <laughs> Please tell me about the Phantom Thread. <laughs> Take the gun, leave the... Con- I don't think he says that in the movie. <laughs> He's not his character. Right. <laughs> um... The problem is, is like I can't talk about it too much yet. Okay. And I even enough. gave a disclaimer on my letterbox review. Don't read this yet because I think everybody I should not, go in cold. I've not. Everybody should go in cold. Yet. Everybody go in cold to this. I think that's the only way to see a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Yes. Now, I mean, I sort of, yeah, you know, I texted you that it's it's akin to The Servant. Mm-hmm. 
which is a lot like the master in that regard. Yes, it's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, his, his his throwback to a little 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 bit of Hitchcock, a little bit of Rebecca in particular. Okay. But it really is just another sort of dynamic between three opposing forces that are trying to work together but constantly struggle. And it's yeah, it's just three main characters, one house, one setting primarily. And it ultimately becomes this sort of fractured love story, um, not unlike Punch Drunk Love. So it's like if you were to combine Master and Punch Drunk Love, it would probably be this movie. And in that regard, is it the most original Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Not especially in terms of themes, because I do think he touches upon similar themes throughout all his movies. But this one... It was weird because, like, how you had experience with Killing a Sacred Deer or something like Mother, the audience response was kind of bewilderment because some people were laughing. and, and But the thing is they were laughing at cruelty, which kind of, like, I found to be really off-putting because there are times in this movie where Daniel Day-Lewis is a, a, a misogynistic asshole, and I wasn't sure if the tone conveyed in the movie was comedic in any way. But people were laughing, and I was just guessing, well, maybe they're laughing out of discomfort. Well, I mean, there, there are certainly funny moments of cruelty in something like There Will Be Blood. Yeah, and no, there is, there's definitely. Like, there's definitely some comedy, some dark comedy to uh, parts of Joaquin Phoenix's character in The Master. Yeah. So is it what did it feel I guess similar to those films? Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, I guess it is. I mean, in terms of tone, it is, you know... He he was capturing very much like a David Lean feel, and it's very operatic in terms of the score. V- again, the incredible cinematography and tracking shots. Is it shots Johnny throughout. Greenwood again? Is the score? Yeah, interesting. Beautiful score. Is it? But it is more like full symphonic orchestra. piano. Yeah. Yeah. Huh, okay. yeah. And the dissolves here are magnificent. There's a dissolve of snow that's amazing. Um, so yeah, it's like his transitions are very again another throwback. It's like he, I guess his inspiration for this was seeing older films for a good long stretch. And also he was sick with the flu one day and uh, Maya Rudolph, you know, treated him so lovingly and and gave him this look that suddenly something in his brain just triggered a whole story, called up Daniel Day-Lewis and said, I have this idea. And then they sort of developed it together. So it's a true collaboration. Although I don't think Daniel Day-Lewis is credited with the screenplay. It was like kind of a more of a emailing back and forth and fleshing out the character together kind of experience. And it is a true collaboration of two remarkable talents, Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis. However, this is probably his first female-centric film as well because I think Daniel Day-Lewis does become more of a supporting character to the woman he falls in love with and meets um, over breakfast one day. And there's an interesting tie-in with food. Uh, And again, I have to be vague, but at the same time, it's wonderful. It's, It's But it's also, it ends on a really strange note. You know, I mean, like a lot of people do find the ending of There Will Be Blood to be a little strange, a little off-putting, and kind of like, well, that came out of nowhere. Uh, that's a little jarring. And I wouldn't say it it falls under that umbrella necessarily, but it's – you have to think about it for a while. It's, again, like some of my favorite filmmakers, you do have to see it a second time probably. Um, but I, I – it was the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie 
since Punch Drunk Love that I immediately loved after it was over. Mm-hmm. And felt a really strong connection to and felt really proud. I was like, I wanted to pat him on the back and be like, good job, man. That was really special. And I don't know if, I have no idea if it'll be another kind of like a puzzle for people, but I I just loved everything about it. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. It's everything I love about his work. And, uh, you know, it's just a nice, again, a nice sort of bridge between a lot of his films. And I think he could happily go on to do something completely different from here and, again, subverted my expectations like you wouldn't believe. So wait till you see it. Mm-hmm. But, I don't, again, we'll talk about it more probably together <laughs> after you see it because I'm curious to get your read, and I've invited friends to see it You know, um, when it opens here in Chicago playing at 70mm because I think it will be a very interesting conversation stimulator when it's over because mm-hmm. it could go either way for people. So we'll see. However, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. You're probably going to see it if you're listening to this podcast, and I hope you do, and let me know what you think. Is it, uh, it doesn't have the comedy, though, of Inherent Vice. Because that was the nah. thing that allowed me to enjoy Inherent Vice in a way I did not really enjoy There Will Be Blood or The Master. Was that it had that people were laughing. Sort of raucous sense of humor. <laughs> people, again, people were laughing. Sure, sure. So maybe I would find it this funny. Is, yeah, this is the year of, like, well, you got the square staying vertical, killing a sacred deer, and this, where it's like... Is it is it outright hilarious, or is it you know awkward and sad and kind of you know strange? <laughs> it's like hard to pinpoint, really. Like I could, I mean, maybe it is meant to be funny, but I think like there there are definitely instances where I'm like, okay, I get it. This is supposed to be really funny because it's so exaggerated. Um, but I I think I think as a as a you appreciate older cinema, and this is really. It's really doing that beautifully. And at the same time, it's not like uh, a ripoff or kind of like, oh, uh, uh, nothing original about it. So mm-hmm. the tone in of itself is very original. The dialogue is very original. Um, just sort of the the environment and kind of the world it plays in. It's it's very David Lean, early Hitchcock kind of a stuff. stuff so. I, I, can't, I can't not think about the time that I went to go see – or I – so they had programmed a 35 millimeter uh, screening of There Will Be Blood hmm. um, at the Music Box, and then they had to cancel it. Oh the right! Day of, and they were going to replace it with a screening of The Red Shoes. So they're like, "Hey, if you, you bought a ticket, like you can come in and see The Red Shoes on 35 millimeter." And that was when I bought my ticket because I was like, I had no interest in There Will Be Blood again, but I'd love to see The Red Shoes on 35 millimeter. And they played the Radiohead music video where Tom York opens and walks through doors. You know, that music video? Yeah. Um, they played that beforehand, and all you could tell it was just like all a Paul Thomas Anderson crowd. They're like, oh my God, yeah, that's so brilliant. That was so good. He's, oh, he's genius. He's one of the best music videos I've ever seen. And then the Red Shoes started, and they just snickered throughout the whole thing, and they were just like making fun of the, the big acting and everything. And I was like, you fucking PTA bros, get out of my house! (laughs) That makes me so upset because I would never be that way watching The Red Shoes. I mean, it's just, yeah, like, I know. I know there's a. I'm not saying that everyone who likes Paul Thomas Anderson would. I know Paul, but I'm just saying, like, there is a contingent of film goers that I associate him with. 
that are understand. like they see him as a shortcut to like art house credibility. They're like, I like Paul Thomas Anderson movies, but they don't they don't really have an interest in film itself. They're mm. just sort of like. I see all the latest movies because I want to keep up to date and I want to be able to argue about them on my, with my friends on Facebook. And Paul Thomas Anderson is the greatest. And, like, obviously there's way more to him than that. But, like, when you were talking about, like, oh, it's kind of like an older movie. I was just imagining all those Paul Thomas Anderson bros being like... I bet they wouldn't like Phantom Thread, to be honest. No, they would because it's Paul Thomas Anderson. No, don't, don't, it's, it shouldn't be like this blanket love. I mean, I know I have it for all of his films, but I'm being sincere in saying that. I'm not, like... I love everything he's ever done. I don't think his that music video is any good, <laughs> you know. And I think uh, the, the the documentary he shot a couple of years ago is fine. It's not mind blowing amazing, you know. And no, no, Hard Eight too is. I didn't mean to put you on the defensive. You no, I know, but it's Paul Thomas Anderson to me. I'm just I would. That's just the memory that pops into my head whenever I think yeah. about Paul Thomas Anderson and older movies. Is like, what if you accidentally make? some of his fans watch like one of the greatest films of all time the answer is <laughs> like like mocking kind of response well they're morons yeah anyway that's if you don't 2017 appre- in a nutshell yeah if you don't appreciate the red shoes then get the fuck out of here uh, other titles I liked The Big Sick Star Wars Last Jedi Tragedy Girls Raw Shape of Water Post and uh, It Comes at Night the square. If we're talking just about movies that we liked, yeah. Other movies I liked. Uh, this is three stars at least. Um, Trip to Spain, Lost City of Zed, Little Hours. I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Um, Fish Story, which is a really fun short documentary that is on the internet, and you should watch Fish Story. Okay. Um, the Unknown Girl. Um, you would like that probably more than I did because it's a Darden. I do like them. Um, Okja. The uh, Bong Joon-ho film. Yeah. Hot, the short hot dog fingers. The Black Coat's <laughs> Daughter. Uh, Hagazuza. Murder on the Orient Express. David Lynch, The Art Life. The Lodgers. Logan Lucky, uh, A Ghost Story. And Primal Rage and World of Tomorrow Chapter 2, which I thought I, uh, yeah. was an inferior retread. I, I was really close to not liking that, that at all, but I do just like Don Hertzfeld's aesthetic. Sure. And yeah, let me know what you think. I was I was surprised see. that we didn't get to talk about that movie at all because I know you're a big World of Tomorrow person. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. I th- I still think it's such a beautiful day. That's right. It's hard to it's hard to beat. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Let me know what you think when you see the post. Well, I'll let you know what I think yeah. when I I I have a letterbox, Jim. I oh, write reviews speaking of them. speaking of. Yes. Um, Patrick, what is your Letterbox account? Because you know people want to check out your work. Check it's out Letterbox.com slash Patrick Rapol. Yes, that's the only social media that he is uh, available on. So I'm uh, not really even available. Like I'm not going <laughs> to reply to a comment you make necessarily on my review. That's just the only thing I use. True, yeah. true. But if you want to, you know, comment on how great of a writer he can be, then yeah, please do. That's uh, my endorsement. Okay. Anyway. You can follow me at now playing. No, wait, yeah, that's it, right? Letterbox.com slash now playing Jim, voicesvisions.net, and uh, I don't know, <laughs> wherever else you want to find me. Please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send Brad and Al some emails, or myself and Patrick if you want to comment on our show today. Uh, 
Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. It's a good show. Um, you're, you're, you got a lot to look forward to, including more Kurosawa coverage from them. And, um, you know, maybe Patrick and I will pop on a Directors Club in the future. Who knows? We'll see. It could happen. Yeah, it could. Anyway, everybody, we uh, love you very much. I love you, Patrick. Mm-hmm. And thank you for being uh, on the show. And thank you for listening to us, well, thank everybody. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. In your garage with your ball microphones. Yeah, it was blast. I had a blast. So we'll have to do this again maybe next year. Yeah. Maybe not. You, you just don't know. We'll right. see. We'll see if the world ends by then. Thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful day. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Five. Well, I'm glad we